Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. My name is Rockin' Randall Colburn, and today I urge you to set aside those dog-eared sci-fi paperbacks and join me in front of the boob tube for a screening of Scott Hicks's 2001 adaptation of Hearts in Atlantis. Who's joining me for this? Mike, say hello, and uh, tell me about your experience. When's the first time you saw this movie? Hey, this is Michael Rootbeer Rothman, because I had lots of, I don't drink a lot of root beer. I'm more Bobby than uh, Ted when it comes to that drink, but uh, I found myself drinking a lot of it while doing the coverage for this uh, book, because uh read through it and then um watched the movie and had a nice little uh, cold ibc but uh this so you is like actually went and bought you like watched this and then went and bought root beer i was reading it and because I, I was reading the book just for our archives episode and all and also just to kind of have context for when we were talking about it and i found myself like fuck i kind of want a root beer um and so yeah i went to buy like a little a little four pack ibc it's like you with the uh the chocolate paydays yes yeah i am i am a product uh a child of the 80s <laughs> So I am you easily love the marketed. Easily marketed. Yeah. Hearts like in if, Atlantis branded root beer. Yeah. If there was <laughs> a Hearts in Atlantis. Face on it. Yeah. Just like sitting there with like two jugs. It's kind of like um like the Sam Adams uh, sign but with like, you know, Anthony Hopkins. This is surprisingly my first uh, time watching this film was just for these episodes. And um, I was shocked because this came out around the time when I was seeing a movie every Friday and we'll talk about the release date of this one, but I'm pretty sure that had to do with it. Why I probably missed it. Uh, sure. But I, I mean, I always like seeing like movies like Justin. And I always make fun of it, like City by the Sea, or like Don't Say a <laughs> Word, or you know, all these movies because it was like five dollars to go see a movie back then, back in my day. So I was seeing everything, but this one just went by, uh, just passed my radar. So um, bye 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 bye. Hey, uh, Simon Rex, go see him in Red Rocket. Sean Baker. Great movie. Great movie. Uh, Rachel, say hello and tell us uh, when. What's your experience with Hard? in Atlantis, uh, either the book, uh, the movie. What is your experience? Hey, this is the Rachel, the Winkle Reeves. And um, this was my first time with both. Nice. I feel like when this came, I was trying to think why I never got around to it. And I think when it came out, I was just in a different place. Like with when, with books at this time, I was all about Chuck Palahniuk. I was reading yeah. Fight Club. I was reading Choke, Invisible Monsters, Lullaby. Like I couldn't get enough of him. And so for some reason, this one, I just didn't pick up. And then the movie, I also feel like this is when I was kind of getting into horror movies a lot. And so I kind of just skipped it. I, I'm going to blame the cover. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it doesn't and look I, very scary. No, and I feel like it fell into like movies like Pay It Forward and mm. K-Packs and October Sky. It like, does. I don't know. It so does. Yes. Like these like <laughs> weird like they're like secondhand lions, you know, mm-hmm. young kid, older man, like feel good family inspirational dramas or whatever. I don't know. With That's a little bit of magic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of magic, a little bit of, you know, K-Packs. special something. K-Packs. <laughs> 
think I, I, banana I, wrong. So I think I just was like, yeah, I'm okay right now. Mm-hmm. So sure. I never went and never went and saw it and just never got around to it. But uh, I'm really happy I did both back to back. I listened to the audiobook and then watched the movie. So I'm actually pretty happy that I had that experience. So did you just do Loman or did you do the whole book? Uh, I just did Loman so okay. far. But yeah, it's interesting. Uh, because it we the way we demarcated the episodes, we did Low Men as one episode, and then the four other stories is the other because there is such a stark distinction, I think, between Low Men and everything that comes after, which is something this movie sort of contends with to some mm-hmm. degree. Um, Dan, say hello and tell us your experience with with uh, HIA, as I'm coming to call it. <laughs> this is Dan. Get low, 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 man, Flieger. Um, so I actually saw this movie in the spring of 2002. I rented it. Um, I was a big Anthony Hopkins fan, and I did not see it when it came out in the theater, probably because I was building a survival shelter uh, in the weeks that this came out. Um, it was, I just remember from the trailer, I think we mentioned the other episode, but where Anton's like, I don't want him to go, or I don't want him to leave. It was just like burned in my memory, that trailer. Yeah, and I will say, uh, Rachel, did you enjoy William Hurt doing the audiobook narration i did at first i, I was wasn't really sure but it really grew on me as i thought when did. he did the I low man voices, it, it was really oh, yeah. scary yeah yeah he pulled it out at the end for sure yeah. so excited to be here to talk about uh this 2001 banger yeah i uh i i was reading i have some reviews i'm going to read later and one of the more positive reviews of the movie came from roger ebert and he ends his review by actually touting the the william hurt low men uh audiobook he says it's one of the best audiobooks he ever heard um, so it's a random for that th- yeah. th- throw in in the review. It's like, oh, go check out the book by Stephen King, but be sure to check out the Cy William Hurt. <laughs> What's well, funny too? The book chill. is it's, it's <laughs> divided into Stephen King and William Hurt reading chapters, so it's, yeah. it's a little strange. Some goofus and gallant there when it comes to audio reading. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, all, all respect to Steve. Um, if you want to hear uh, Flieger and I and Anna Marie Cox and um, Matt Gerber talk about the book, we've got two great episodes that are now available. So anyways, let's pop on over to uh, the public library in a little town called Harwich. Uh, we're going to talk about the background of the movie at the Harwich Public Library. Just a library card? No, an adult library card. Oh, my. All the master storytellers of the world just waiting for you. You know why she picked it? Because it was free. Ah, oh, that doesn't matter. Don't you give up on this card, Bobby. These books can be solid gold. Welcome to the Harwich Public Library. This is uh, where we talk about... Is Mike Hanlon here, or is he only at the Dairy No, I, I, you know, how far do you think Harwich is from, from, from Dairy? Probably a, Hop, skip, and a jump. I was going to say, so maybe he does stop by occasionally and lends a helping hand <laughs> as a librarian. <laughs> Um, so we, yeah, as you'll see on this episode, we have an interview with the director, Scott Hicks, really lovely chat, uh, lots of great stories. Um, and he, he fills in a lot of stuff about the background and the shooting of it all. But, um, so I guess we'll, we'll probably save a lot of this for that, but I do want to just lay out the basics, which is that this was directed by Scott Hicks, who you may know from Shine, which is a big Oscar nominated movie in 1997. He also did Snow Falling on Cedars starring Ethan Hawke and the No Reserve, or was it No Reservations or Kitchen Confidential? What He did one of the Bourdain movies or one of the No Reservations. Yeah, I think it's the the one with Aaron Eckhart. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he was involved with the Bradley Cooper one. But uh, yeah, so he did this adaptation. It's from a script by William Goldman, um, beloved screenwriter. And uh, Goldman also did Misery, the adaptation, and Dreamcatcher. So stay tuned for Dreamcatcher. We'll be getting to that a little bit later. Um, yeah, this came out just two years after the book uh, came out. But it's it's kind of just, ma- I don't know, there's something sort of like eerie about like literally a few months after the, or a few months before the release of the book, Stephen King was in a horrible car accident that nearly killed him, which very much clouded the release of the book, I think. And then this movie came out on September 28th, 2001, insert ominous music. Yeah. So yeah, about two weeks after 9-11, uh, Hearts in Atlantis hit theaters, which I don't really think you can sort of downplay no. <laughs> that no. impact on any movie that came out. So we're going to read a lot of the reviews, and I have a feeling that and like we all have our own thoughts in this movie, which we'll be discussing, but it's always hard, I think, for me to take reviews uh, that are written in times of strife of that nature, like too much, uh, like tightly, because, you know, I don't think anybody's mind was in the right place to to accurately sort of, um, you know, judge a movie like this. What's but. funny is they say that, but Jay-Z's The Blueprint came out on 9-11. It's held yeah. up as a classic album. I know. I'm but not that- saying, yeah, I'm not saying the content's not good it's just the reviews no versus like glitter though where mariah carey sort of placed the blame for her failure. idle hands too idle hands yeah. donnie darko got a hit by it i mean it, it's it, there's a lot of films and productions that were certainly affected by what the release was which makes me wonder in an era now where things are getting shuffled all around i mean having written about all the release dates over the last two years for the pandemic it's is so bond easy. out yet is bond is gonna come out oh no <laughs> ghostbusters afterlife it's already three years later but with this, it's it's interesting that they didn't push him back. And I mean, looking back, it was such a fucking chaotic time because you talk about like censorship today. Like people were talking about how like they wanted to like take out like the two towers out of movies and stuff like that. I mean, it was like it was such a chaotic time. Like Hollywood didn't really know how to react to this. And so I think a lot of these movies just kind of kept dolling out without them even thinking about it because they're probably concerned about so many other things, you know, like the future of where, you know, cinemas is, you know, is cinema going to be, you know, a hit because of the security and all this other stuff. And I don't know, I, I feel like Hearts in Atlantis, I imagine it kept its press roll, you know, press release, you know, the rollout and everything. I'm sure critics, those that actually decided to go to the theaters went, you know, a week or two ahead of time, which means that they're even closer to the date of 9-11 than they were with this release. Because usually a lot of critic screenings, especially around September when it comes into award seasons, you get to see them like two or three weeks ahead of time. So I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of these critics that saw it were only days after 9-11. If yeah. that, I never thought know. about that, but you're totally right. And it's like, this is like the last thing you want to see. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. great. Some like nostalgic drenched, like to, you know, <laughs> quintessential American childhood. Like really, this is not what yeah. I want to be watching right now. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be did, watching like they, American Psycho or something. Yeah. <laughs> and they did remove the towers from this movie. So they did. Yeah. There was a huge it's, shot where, you know, Bobby's driving back to Harwich and he's just like, hey, and then he like waves to the towers. He waves to the towers. Yeah. yeah. It's a good scene. Um, so <laughs> So, yeah, this was put up by Castle Rock Entertainment, obviously Stephen King, or at least the the kind of non-horror side of Stephen King had a lot of, um, you know, love from Castle Rock Entertainment. We talk about that with both David Morris and with Scott Hicks. Um, so, yeah, this was this was an interesting one. Let's talk about some reviews. Well, 
box office wise, it basically barely recouped its budget. It was mm-hmm. just shy of its budget. It so it did still okay. It grossed a domestic total of like twenty four million. Uh, the budget was thirty one million, and wow. but then the, with the international that came in, it basically just brushed up to thirty one million. So, uh, so yeah, but uh, its Metacritic score. Not very good. It has about a 55 on Metacritic. Um, and I'm going to read some of these uh, reviews. I'll start with the good ones here. I'd say the the best one definitely was Roger Ebert's review in the Chicago Sun-Times. Um, he had a lot of, of very lovely uh, things to say. He said, Hearts in Atlantis weaves a strange spell made of nostalgia and fear. Rarely does a movie make you feel so warm and so uneasy at the same time. As Stephen King's story evokes the mystery of adolescence when everything seems to be happening for the very first time. Um, he says, there are wonderful set pieces in the film. One of the best is the way Ted tells Bobby uh, the story of the great Chicago Bears running back Bronco Nagurski, who came out of mm-hmm. retirement old and hurt and seemed to carry the whole Chicago Cardinals team on his back as he marched down the field in a last hurrah. Um, a movie like this is kind of a conjuring act. Like a lot of Stephen King's recent work, it is not a horror story so much as an everyday story with horror lurking in the margins. It's not a genre movie, in other words, but the story of characters we believe in and care about. Anton Yelkin is not just a cute kid, but a smart and wary one. And Mika Borum is not just the girl down the street, but the kind of soul who inspires the best in others. And Anthony Hopkins finds uh, just the tired, truthful note for Ted Brodigan, who knows the worst about men and fears for his future, but still has enough faith to believe it will do a kid good to read the right books. And uh, the Village Voice was also very positive. They said the heartfelt use of extrasensory events as metaphors for a child's grasp of adult mysteries has a poetry to it, and the unblinking sympathy for kids struggling with evil and with the strange frequencies of prepubescent passion can, if your defenses are down, lay you out. Uh, the Washington Post said, yes, it's corny and re-emerging cynics need not apply, but is blissfully heartwarming. Um, less good, though, was Entertainment Weekly, usually a fan of oh, King's they said, King. <laughs> uh, they said too pokey and contrived to be a good movie. But they said, but it's lushly serene atmospherics given current events make it a pure slice of sentimental comfort food. So we got a little 9-11 reference there. I've heard Pokey. Pokey was in a couple different reviews. Yeah, how, that's, I, what, what would be the context of that exactly? Pokey. I think Pokey's just like, you know, it's like when my wife doesn't want to, like, you know, get ready quicker when we're going somewhere. She's like poking around the house. You know what I mean? Maybe it's like the Pillsbury <laughs> Doughboy. You know, it's like Pokey. You know, I was going to say Gumby's stomach. sidekick. Oh, Pokey too, yeah. Yeah, you they're know. definitely referencing Gumby in these. Yeah, that, probably, I mean, it's probably a Gumby reference. That's why I think. <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, Rolling, maybe... Stone, Rolling Stone says Hicks, following his stultifying direction of snow falling on cedars, very mean, coats the film in a bogus idyllic mist that substitutes cheap sentiment for blunt truth. Harsh. You could tell people were just not in the mood for this. I, I, do, <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I, I do think you're right, Rachel. I do think it, it is that... Like, why would we want this right now? You know, yeah. and it sucks because it's like, had this not happened, I mean, obviously there's a lot of things that would have you know changed if that if nine eleven didn't happen. But in the case of Hearts in Atlantis, I do think that it connects with a lot of movies that were released that year. I mean, you, you we were joking before with K Pax and all this stuff, so it does fall in line with movies that Hollywood were making, and it just the the tone, attitude, everything shifted at that point. And there are some that did want that, as you mentioned with comfort food, and I think there are some that just were like fuck this, this is not the world we live in anymore. My eyes are open. I'm not going back. Yeah, I, I think that makes it interesting to go back to, though, is like this this relic of that idyllic 90s where mm-hmm. Mike and I were talking about this recently, but it was post-Cold War, pre-9-11. 
has been determined in like the modern age as one of the best times to grow up in America because there really wasn't any danger. There wasn't really any existential threat. Uh, so after 9-11, especially going back and looking at this, you're like, it is kind of nice to see this movie not take itself too serious, you know, and reference the attack, whereas every review of it is going to say, you know, what happened recently as <laughs> yeah. they reviewed this film. If it was yeah. such a good time to grow up, then why am I so fucked up? Well, because of 9-11. You also have nothing else to worry about except, you know, looking inward versus looking externally at problems. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Uh, then yeah. I went to Woodstock 99 and burned everything down. <laughs> um, Salon, in a particularly damning review, says, The resulting film uh, directed by Scott Hicks is afflicted by terminal nostalgic drift. You come out of the theater with nothing more specific than half-pleasant memories of baseball gloves, Ferris wheels, and vintage automobiles. I've had naps that were more exciting. Oh, wow. All right, buddy. Jesus Christ. LA Weekly says, for all the highfalutin dialogue and mysterioso goings on, the only true mystery Hicks and Goldman conjure up is whether the mellifluously voiced outsider is dangling his new friend a little too closely on his knee. Good God. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's like Liz Garfield in that sense. Yeah. The whole book is like, is like, is he a pedophile? Um, okay. Talk, talk about reading the room. Yeah, these. Like, I know. I think people were just really mad. And can you blame them? I mean, like, no, you want to go off on something. And it's like <laughs> Mr. Hopkins is just sitting. Sir Anthony's sitting right there just taking the beating. Hey. Um, okay. The, okay. Time for the, the, the main feast. New York Times. One of the most nasty reviews I've ever read. Uh, no, that's not. That's not true. It's still bad. Um, it really isn't hard to make a talented actor look like a blithering fool. All it takes is the deployment of some choice mouthfuls of mush with instructions to squeeze out tears. And mush, delivered with a trembling quasi-biblical solemnity, is what emanates from Anthony Hopkins most of the time in Hearts in Atlantis. A nostalgic fiasco, so shameless. It makes movies like Simon Birch and Frequency seem as austere as the work of Robert Brisson. (laughs) That's a great sentence. Yeah. Um... But the childhood that the movie remembers has all the authenticity of a hastily reconstructed scene from the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. Although the movie wants to evoke an age of golden, shining innocence, its overstated visual gloss and relentless homilies, we're all just passing through, is another of Ted's priceless bon mots, feel meretricious. The sunsets are too orange. The vintage cars look too new. Mr. Hopkins was the wrong choice for the role of a persecuted visionary with his hooded, milky eyes, reptilian features, and seductively oratorical delivery. This Welsh actor oozes a canniness that feels more carnal than spiritual. No matter how much wounded nobility he pumps into Ted, you're never free of the creepy suspicion that Ted might be a child molester. All right. That's just so over the top and overwrought. Yeah. Like, I, I don't agree with that at all. But yeah. I would describe Hearts in Atlantis as emotional pornography, except that the film film conveys no genuine emotion and where pornography offers a release the only responses the movie elicits are twinges of acute embarrassment by oh, release God. he means uh, orgasm yeah. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> um right. so so yeah i think people were probably seeking out the worst in things because everybody's like screaming pedophilia at this movie and reptilian anthony hopkins what the hell yeah, yeah. Sh- so mean <laughs> Maybe he's. They think he's a reptile, uh, deep cover. Deep and, and as agent. you mentioned in the book, that's a theme: is that the uh, mother was it Liz? She thinks that he could be a pedophile. So there has to be a lingering sense of that. So picking up on it in your film review and mentioning it as if it's an accident. Yeah. It's very very silly. 
Yeah. Um, I imagine like a lot of critics maybe had just gotten out of like a screening of Mulholland Drive or something. And it's just like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's the movie I needed right now. And then they go and see this movie and they're like, fuck this. You know, it's, it's just too saccharine or I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of where I would be mindset, you know, emotionally and psych- psychologically if this movie would come across as like a warm blanket or if I would kind of um, reject it like, you know, a crowd in the Simpsons or something like that. I, I had to, I think to imagine I'd, I feel like the movie, the movie Legend of Bagger Vance was around this time. And I remember enjoying that movie, even though that movie's problematic as fuck and is like saccharine as hell and sentimental and kind of a bullshit movie, even though I do like a lot of it. Um, <laughs> and I th- imagine this is the same type of movie. And I think I, I think I dig this. I mean, I think I still would probably come out of it being like, well, that was a nice escape, you know, as opposed to yeah. having an attitude of like this, this was a betrayal. <laughs> or something. Yeah, I remember yeah. seeing, I remember seeing this in college um, and thinking, I remember coming out of it feeling that it felt like toothless. Uh, was the word I would say I, I I would use was I liked it more this go around honestly like now that I think I'm a little bit older and perhaps divorced from you know the the tumult of that era but yeah it was I I remember and the thing was I remember too and we'll talk about this being disappointed by the lack of Dark Tower <laughs> <laughs> yeah. because I I love that stuff in the story so much and I was disappointed you know I remember being like. Uh, they changed, you know, by they took away so much of what makes the story interesting. But now, of course, you see how necessary that was. And and um, and one thing we'll talk about more of when we talked to Scott Hicks, he he kind of called it a willful ignorance of the Dark Tower lore because he didn't want to get swept up in that and have it kind of cloud um, the making of it, which I think was very necessary. Yeah, so. I, I think, too, even going back, I, I feel similar, Randall, where I appreciate it a lot more. And I think even just for the performance by Anton, which we'll get into, I think it's yeah. a great uh, example of a really strong child actor giving a great performance. Yeah, I'm glad I didn't see this when it came out. This would, I know, I would have hated this. Mm. Like, I, I was at the point where, like, I thought Requiem for a Dream was like the most High amazing cinema. film I'd ever seen. So, like, if following up with something like this, I would have been like, this is awful. I, I, I we would have been, we would have been friends, Rachel. I was obsessed with Requiem around that time. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think subversive cinema was like the fact it was really coming into play at that point on the mainstream level. And I do think that that certainly fuels a lot of the vitriol towards this because it does feel so antiquated by comparison. But the thing that I kind of like about it now is something we talk a little bit about, about with Scott Hicks and also um, with David Morris is just how this movie just doesn't exist anymore for us. You know, yeah. like this doesn't even come out on Netflix. Like if it's on Netflix, it's like the dumbest polished movie ever and it doesn't look real and it's shitty and it has to have some sort of I- real major, major IP attached to it. It doesn't have the finesse and sort of concentration that this movie has um, in a way that doesn't feel like it's trying to go f- for anything else, but being a drama. Like, I think that there's like an unpretentiousness about it that I like that you know, I guess you could make the argument that it was released in fall, so maybe it was going trying to go for the Oscars, but I really don't think so. I just think that it was like it's emblematic of its era of like they just made these dramas, you know, and they came out and there were nice stories. And I mean, I think that kind of culminates in a lot of my assessment of the movie overall. But that was my biggest takeaway. It was just like, where is this movie today? <laughs> like, yeah. it just and also, with a budget of thirty million, I, yeah, you go back and you're like, man, you could have made this on more of a shoestring budget. Because uh, I can't really, other than maybe salary, I can't imagine where most of that budget went. There's not a ton of effects or Mm-mm. even on location shots, right? It's a 
it could almost be a play. Yeah. 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 Cool. Well, we mentioned some of the actors, so let's pivot over to our heroes and villains section. I'm going to have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the Losers Club, asshole! Here in Heroes and Villains, we talk about the characters, the actors, uh, what we liked, what we didn't. Um, Obviously... I think the big pull here is Mr. Anthony Hopkins. There's kind of a fun story that Scott tells us that um, Hopkins himself was was big on telling in interviews surrounding the release of it because it was just a serendipitous moment. But basically, um, Anthony Hopkins like had this moment where he said that he wanted to work with William Goldman and he wanted to do a uh Stephen King adaptation. Uh, and then literally like very soon after that, they got a call about like, would he be interested in working with Goldman again uh, on a Stephen King story? Because he had previously worked with Goldman and had read some of his work. And uh, so, yeah, two days later, a call came in that there was a script for him to read uh, by Goldman based on a King story and Hopkins accepted immediately. Uh, He only read half of it. And Scott Hicks is a funny story about, you know, being with Goldman when they got that call um, that Hopkins would do it, which was a huge relief for them because he was the big get. And yeah, so thoughts on Hopkins in this movie. I mean, Mike, you brought up in our interview that he was kind of swirling around the Hannibal Lecter territory yeah. around this time. So it was kind of an odd, odd choice to cast him in this kind of fatherly role. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, and I, I joked with like Anton, it's like, you know, did he get scared of him? You know, because as a, as a kid, you know, I was definitely terrified of him because I knew him as, you know, obviously as Hannibal Lecter from Silence of the Lambs, which had only come out 10 years before this. And then at this time, it was like the big comeback. Like Hollywood was capitalizing so much on the notoriety and fame that came with that movie because it was such a juggernaut hit in 91. And after that, it just became a landslide in pop culture where, I mean, it was parodied. It was, it was ubiquitous. And so by the time that Hopkins came back for Hannibal, Hollywood was not only just overcapitalizing on it, but Han- like, like I feel like Hopkins was too. Like he was like, well, I'm a, fu- I'm, this is like my, my next gasp, my next chapter, you know, and not to say that he's ever been fallen out of the con- the pop- popular consciousness. He's always been a, a very popular and, um, you know, major working actor. But I do feel like coming back to the Hannibal Lecter role, he had some blockbuster Quan to borrow from uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. and Jerry Maguire. I, I feel like he had that. And it was a swagger that carried over into a lot of movies around this time. Like, does anyone remember the movie he did with uh, Chris Rock, uh, Bad Company? Bad Company. Was, oh, yeah. my God. Yes. Exactly. So, meet Joe Black. And meet Joe Black. <laughs> I mean, he was he he started becoming, um, I, I, you know, a headliner, uh, a headline name. And I think so much of that is with hot with uh, with Lecter. So to see him in this role where he's, you know, paternalistic and, um, you know, the nice guy, it is interesting. It's a weird it's an odd sell, I feel like, to the audiences to see him because yeah. it's that year he's literally fucking eating like, you know. Uh, and he also Ray did his Titus. Head. He also did Titus, uh, the Shakespeare adaptation oh, of Julian yeah. Taymor's, like uh, yeah. like right around the same time. And in that, he like uh, basically kills some children and feeds them <laughs> to uh, their sort mothers. Of. Yeah, he honor kills. Uh, what's crazy too is Red Dragon. So Hannibal came out two thousand one, and Red Dragon was two thousand two. So I mean, yeah. he was in the Lecter mode. Yeah, I do think it adds like that certain layer of danger to his character, though. Just the fact that like, especially like in that scene where the bullies. Um, mm. our first bullying Carol and Bobby and he shows up it's like there's a little bit of threat to him there yeah. and I feel like that has to do with Hopkins in general it's not so much his delivery it's just 
you know it's there like beneath it and the way that he says those lines it's like ooh, be careful he also like says that and this is in the script not in the story that uh like like Doolin, the main bully like dresses in his mom's clothes and Mm -hmm. stuff like that yeah (laughs) which is just like yeah but it's like there's the menace right there oh totally Mm -hmm. i mean the way he strips it down it's like it's i almost like half expected him like take the baseball bat and like hit him and then like rip his face (laughs) off like where the face is smiling and just yeah (laughs) like that scene in the jail cell in silence but yeah you know all the kids are like, what? No, don't rip his face off. No, that's not. And then, you know, Ted, no. But he is wonderful in this movie. I mean, he's wonderful in everything, but there's there's kind of a sweetness to him that, and that's, I think, when it works best for me is is the moments when the low men aren't creeping in, the psychic stuff isn't creeping in, where it's just, you know, this kind of kindly man and, and this little boy having a very pure uh, non-pedophile uh, connection. And um, because I think the the sort of, chemistry between him and Anton is is really palpable and and Anton was such like a a sparky like fiery little actor that um I think and Scott has sort of confirms this that Anthony really loved working with him um and you can sort of see that on screen which uh to me it was one of the best parts of the movie I think yeah I mean he's Ted like he is Ted Bryan I I mean I I I know some of the reviews were like oh he doesn't work for this but I think he's dead on I mean I had went right from reading the book Grant, I'm reading the book knowing who Ted's going to be, but I had read Ted, you know, about Ted in, you know, a later Dark Tower book, you know, because I've read the whole Dark Tower series. So and I didn't have Anthony Hopkins in mind for that. You know, I I just had, you know, this I I don't know who I had for it, but it wasn't Anthony Hopkins. But reading the book and, you know, reuniting with the character, which is a really weird way to do that. I really recommend if you haven't read The Dark Tower to read Hearts of Atlantis first, because I think that I probably would have had more of an impact when he does appear. Um, I, I just think, you know, watching in the movie right after reading Heart, The Low Men, it, it's just a perfect translation. Like you could tell he definitely read this book, you know, and re- definitely read the script. Like it, it has the, the cadence of everything that's in King's pages. So I don't know. Um, Flieger knows this because I said it on our episode, but the guy I always envisioned uh, as Ted was, do you remember the guy who like really created Itchy and Scratchy in that Simpsons episode oh who was God. like a bum? I always <laughs> thought of him for some reason. I have no idea why, but I still think of him, I, even though I've seen the movie. So. Golden Rocket Car. <laughs> he basically is Lenny with like gray hair um, <laughs> from Lenny from the Simpsons. But yeah, it looked very similar. Um um, yeah, so let's talk about Anton a little bit. This was his very first movie, uh, although he would be very much a working actor in short order. Him and Mika Borum, who is the girl in this movie, actually would go on to co-star in the same year in Along Came a Spider. <laughs> so, uh, playing Monica Potter. Yeah, the great Monica Potter. Um, <laughs> and so... So, yeah, it's it's interesting. But obviously there was so much talent there. And uh, and he was he's really my favorite part of the movie. We talk about this with both David Morse and Scott Hicks. But the scene with Alan Tudyk as the um, as the card shark, the three card Monty guy at the fair is probably my favorite scene of the movie. I think it, it's the one that best captures sort of the combination of magic and innocence and wonder and quiet menace, because I think that there's something a little bit scary about the three card Monty guy in the book and in the movie. And, um, and I think Anton really nails that moment um, for me. And I think he captures just that sort of wide eyed intensity where there's also so much happening, like, you know, beneath the smile, like he's really able to capture that, that sense of unease. Like in Ebert's review, he talked about the idea of warmth and unease sort of living side by side. And I think that really does sum up uh, the story 
Uh, but then also, I think I don't think this movie fully captures that. But I think it's it's an Anton that it does it the best. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's funny you mentioned the smile because so Anton was raised in the Soviet Union or at least born there, and culturally Russians have a thing where they don't smile. Smiling at strangers is seen as almost like a manipulation, like, oh, what's this person going to do to me? So much so that when the Sochi Olympics were happening, they had to do a PSA campaign to encourage Russians to smile at the people <laughs> visiting their country. Wow. Um, so there was some, you know, in the trivia, there's some parts about uh, Anthony Hopkins improvising and actually getting that smile out of Anton, who, you know, instinctively did not want to smile, but he actually got him to do it. And I, I just yeah. think it was like, what a stellar performance, especially for your first film. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. And it, I think it really that makes that you helps. consider oh, it's yeah. like his it's like his performance is so authentic. Whereas like you see like sorry Mika, yeah. like, love you, but like it's you can tell like <laughs> who is acting and who is like not so schooled in that, you know, in that craft. And it just feels so joyous and genuine, especially I mean, some of the scenes with Hopkins, it's just I mean, it's heartbreaking mm-hmm. to be honest. Yeah. Like he's just so genuinely enjoying the whole process that you actually believe that he is Bobby. Like you don't feel like he's really acting. And even sometimes when it doesn't quite land, I feel like that makes it even more genuine. Mm -hmm. Like there's sometimes where it's like, okay, maybe that wasn't quite the delivery that, you know, a regular actor kid would have gone. But I feel that that makes it even more believable how he just kind of like says something and runs out of the room. It's Mm -hmm. like, that's what a real kid would do. I don't know. So it's, I love his performance and the way that Hopkins plays off of it is just so endearing. Yeah, I mean the, the chemistry is the fuel of this movie, and it, it, yeah. there is no movie without there the two. And same thing with the book. I mean, there's the the relationship is the whole. You know, sorry, the, the low the, men are outside my door and police cars and ambulances right now. So oh no, better better run, better run. Uh, <laughs> you know, I can feel them behind my eyes. Oh my god, but yeah, no, I I love Yelchin in this. Like I, I think he's just a firecracker. Um, in in the, the thing I love about him so much is that. Uh, and I don't know if this is maybe his Russian upbringing, but he's so Yiddish, you know, like, you know, the like the part when he's talking to Ted and they're talking about Carol and he's just like, there's millions, you know, or like, oh he's gosh, like, oh, yeah. I'm earning my daily bread. Like, he's just such a little he's like a little adult, you know, um, <laughs> which he plays up really well in a Curb Enthusiasm episode later on when he's oh, like a, he's a so magician. Curb. Yeah. It's so funny. Like, that's all I could think about is that no wonder that the producers of Curb like brought him in because he's he always looks like he he acts and presents himself as if he's so knowledgeable and so two you know two or three steps ahead of you um although in this movie he certainly plays up the wonderman a little bit more which is great but um i i, I just love him and I, I yeah i felt the same rachel I, I watching this i just felt so depressed because it's just he really is like the river phoenix of our generation i feel oh, like oh yeah like, that's a good comparison know, it just well, feels like there's so much potential when you watch this and I mean, every role you could pretty much say the same thing. He's fucking awesome in Green Room. Like he's the best so part of that. Movie. He's so good in Green Room. Well, River Phoenix I, without the drugs, I guess. Well, yeah, and true. I just, yeah. I feel like it's just so sad. It's like what kind of I mean, it's not like I have to really say this. We all know what kind of world we live in, but the fact that like we live in a world where no offense to Anthony Hopkins, but like Hopkins is still with us and mm-hmm. Yelchin isn't. Yeah. And that like when you I watch this, like it just you see the age difference and it's just like how is this possible? Like, how how are we living in this world? And it just like definitely 
I don't know. It injects the movie with something that obviously wasn't there until recently. Oh, absolutely. I was thinking about that. Yeah. That there's sort of an added weight just knowing, um, you know, that Anton's life and career were cut so short um, in such kind of a sad, tragic way. And uh, yeah, it does give the movie a little extra heft that perhaps I didn't feel back then. Um, Isn't it weird that there are multiple Stephen King movies that have this? Like Stand By Me as River Phoenix, At People Has Brad Renfro. Oof, yeah. I didn't think about that. Okay, I've never thought about that, and that's horrifying. It's it's eerie, which, and and it's it's what makes it so much eerier to me is that is the fact that like King writes about this type of subject all the time. Is that like the you know the loss of like someone that's taken far too soon from us. Well, that people, and, and it's not just Renfro, it's just everything around Oh, that. well, yeah, uh, because that's, an, you know, that's a, like, it's the implication of that relationship between Singer and Renfro that is, like, also just so fucking sad. Oh, and, yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah, luckily, luckily, none of that here. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> well, I was going to say just one one thing to add to that, too, is, like, this is the rare Stephen King movie where there are no on-screen deaths. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they reference yeah. deaths, and obviously in the book there's deaths because, you know, the Vietnam and whatnot. Um, but in this, no no on-screen deaths, which is very rare. Yeah. I mean, they could have shown a scene where, like, Bobby comes back home and then, like, um, he goes back to that kid and then he, like, blows his head off. <laughs> 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 it's like, oh, I see you're uh, still torturing people out there. And then it's just like, you know. Um, speaking of torture... Let's talk about Mika Borum's performance. (laughs) Sorry, that was so mean. But no, I have a reputation on this podcast of trashing child actors. You're a bad boy. I'm not going to stop now. I got to be honest. She really hurts uh, some of the really pivotal scenes. And, you know... I think part of that has to do with acting opposite Anton, who was so natural, but like, you know, their, their kiss scene on the, on the Ferris Uh. wheel, which is one of my favorites in the story. I think it's so sweet. It just rings really wooden and false. And then same when, you know, they say goodbye to each other at the end. And, uh, don't they say like, I love you. Yeah. She says like, I love you. you. Gotta go make salad. Yeah. Yeah. It's so boilerplate. All that stuff has so much weight in the story and she just does not have the gravitas to like, she doesn't seem to understand just like the actual weight of all of it. Whereas Anton does. And so their performances are sort of mismatched in that regard. And, um, and yeah, man, it's hard to find good child actors. You know, it's like, and like, that's why stand by me is like one of the greatest movies ever, because you got, you found four like kids who were perfect for it. And Mm -hmm, here you sort of have this imbalance between these two really pivotal, important characters, Bobby and Carol and Carol just cannot hold a candle to, um, to Bobby in this. And that's sad because also the script has issues that we're going to get to. And mm-hmm. the script yeah. cor- kind of becomes counterbalanced at the end, like weighted in a weird, heavy way towards Carol, despite the movie, not quite earning that. And then she also can't really sustain that per uh, that, um, that level of weight that's placed on her and what that relationship means to Bobby. So it's, um, I thought she was a lot better playing like the goth teen or whatever. At the end, so. <laughs> That's what I thought too. I was like, emo Molly is way better than yeah. Carol. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. She, the- she just approaches it. So like, she's just like, so schooled right. and like, like she's trying so hard, which is also like really sad. Cause you know, this little girl is like trying so hard to mm-hmm. do this like role and it's just, it just falls so flat and is really disappointing. Yeah, th- those. Anybody lines. else want to trash a child? Well, it's just like <laughs> the, the lines. I mean, the script it doesn't give her great stuff, but even then, like you could do a little bit more. But like when she, the Ferris wheel scene is the one I, I was literally writing down lines like, "I'm dying here," or 
Thank you, yeah. Bobby. That was just the nicest thing. Like, yeah. When no. she says "thank you, kind sir," yeah, uh, I died. Like, thank you, kind sir, for saving my life. That was real swelly, huh? like, yeah. It's just it's <laughs> it's so bad. Yeah, it's just it's wild too because like Will Rothar, who plays John Sol- Sully Sullivan, which obviously gets a definitely decimated role here compared to yeah, the we'll book. Talk about that, yeah. He's still pretty great in his scenes. Like I mean, yeah. he's yeah. at the fair and he's doing, you know, when he's talking back and forth, uh, you know, with Tudic and, and also with Bobby, like I believe that kid, you know, yeah. even though it's a well, minor role. But Yeah. I always knew that kid weirdly. Cause I used to like, I used to always like, I had a weird photographic memory for actor names. So I remember I knew that the kid who played Sully in this was the same kid who played young Roy Munson in Kingpin. Oh my God, my it is. <laughs> and, crazy. Uh, and, oh. but then I also found out when I was doing some research for the book was that, cause I actually reference um, when we were talking about Loman, I referenced David Mamet's play, the cryptogram, which is a book about basically a child uncoding his parents uh, sort of secret language to better and it's the themes are very similar to low men where it's about kind of that that step into understanding about adult problems when you're a child and then the world kind of becomes bigger in a very scary and unsettling way and uh that kid will rothar he played the the main kid in the cryptogram when it premiered in in california i believe so it's just kind of a weird coincidence but yeah i think he's great in it and um and yeah, it makes me sad that like I, it's just one of those things that's weird. Like the whole like the movie begins like with adult Bobby going to Sully's funeral, but then we see like nothing of Sully like nothing. the whole movie. So it feels no. weird that we're making that leap to this funeral. Like that funeral has so much weight, but it's like we barely saw any of that relationship, anyways. So yeah, you know. yeah, it's like they they're really trying to place emphasis on like the trio of them, which I guess they kind of do, but it, it's. Goldman leans a lot on montage, you know, and so you don't really get to see any real one-on-ones and it would have been nice to have like a one-on-one with like just John and Bobby, which we just don't really get, you know, and yeah, and I think that's really crucial because you do get a lot of those moments in the short story. So you could have thrown one in there, you know, like maybe had a sleepover and he's like, hey, who's that creepy old man upstairs or something (laughs) like that? Um, Last performance that we should probably talk about is uh, Hope Davis playing Liz Garfield. I think she's fantastic mm-hmm. in this. It's the hardest role, in my opinion. We talk about this with Scott Hicks a little bit, but that is a character who is sort of uh, very repellent in the book, purposefully. Uh, not in a way, like at least in my opinion, not in a way that I think is meant to make us hate the character, but I think understand that to Bobby, she is uh, an oppressive force on his life, which is, I think how a lot of kids can feel about their parents, either one or the other. And, um, and the kind of real catharsis of the book is Bobby coming to understand, um, his mom as a three dimensional person rather than just a a nagging mother. And the, the movie can't really quite go as textured and layered as the story is. And Liz is softened, I think somewhat, in this adaptation, because I think that's a hard character to manifest on screen, but I think she still really does access the uh, the sort of inherent contradictions in that character, which is that, you know, she's so hard on Bobby when it comes to money, but then she kind of hoards away her own money so she can treat herself when she needs to and um, and cultivating that resentment for Bobby as it manifests. But I think, too, she also captures uh, sweeter moments between them and also moments where you can kind of just see beyond that kind of scowl on her face. Um, I love Hope Davis and everything she's in. She's also a babe. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, I, I, I loved her in this. I was going to say uh, I, Ellen Tudyk 
don't forget, don't sleep on him either. Oh yeah, we'll talk about him in a minute. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. go ahead, Rachel. One of the things, I mean, the thing I liked about Hope's performance in this is she added that kind of that sweetness and that lovableness that I think was kind of missing in the book. Like she's pretty, mm-hmm. she's a pretty hard, complicated character in the book, but there, I think you guys were talking about it in your episode that there's never really like, why, like, why does Bobby love her? Like she never really shows that side of her. And I think you get more of that in the film. Totally. But then on the flip side of that, you also don't get some of that like complicated backstory yeah. in the yeah. film. Like you don't like they touch on those like, yeah, she's a little stingy with money, but they don't really go into why. Like I always read it as she just doesn't want to be caught off guard again. Like when her husband died, she was put in a position that I mean, anybody would feel you know, un- unstable. And so I always saw her, her hoarding of the money as more just like, I'm prepared. If something yeah. happens, like, I don't want to be in that position again. Agreed. And I think that that kind of wasn't quite translated as much. She was almost, I don't know, it was almost like afterthought, like, and also with uh, her boss, that relationship with her boss was much more nuanced, I think. Um, in the book of like yeah. how she kind of knew what was going on and like yeah maybe there were some like inappropriate dinners and some inappropriate office behavior like leading up to that that she was kind of participating in to keep her job but in the film they just kind of that wasn't really I don't know not as well executed I thought yeah, yeah there's no foundation laid for that really it yeah. just kind of happened very you know a couple there was like one scene where she was on the phone and then she mm-hmm. went and started crying but I, I, I just felt like it was better executed in the book that there was a lot more going on that she wasn't letting Bobby know about. Um, but I do think, yeah, I think Hope added that lovableness and you could see why Bobby loved her so much more in the movie, for sure. It, it's a complicated conundrum because, you know, we're all in the eyes of Bobby. And, you know, in the book, you are still kind of in the eyes of Bobby because he's, you know, obviously he's the main role here, which was why I think a lot of, the stuff that happens with Liz is behind closed doors, but you know, it's still third person omniscient. So you do get a little bit more detail in this. The movie actually commits a sin that I usually point out just because I used to get slapped on the wrist on this in the short story collection is that it, it, it all is coming from the mind of, um, you know, Morris's Bobby, right. You know, it's all in those, that moment where he puts the two lines on the, the condensation. But then when you watch Liz, we're in her mind <laughs> about what mm-hmm. happened in that that uh you know at the motel and when she was on that trip and so like you know a you can't do that (laughs) like that doesn't really work you can't like you know lateral pass you know your memories and stuff like that but if you're gonna do that then i don't know maybe give us a little bit more (laughs) like you're already breaking that rule so maybe just give us a little bit more details as what's going to happen here i mean even then it doesn't matter too much because I, I do still get the idea that this is a complicated relationship between Bobby and Liz. And that's all I need to know. Like, I don't really, you know, I don't, I, I, I would like to have had more depth with Liz and stuff like that. But I do appreciate the the way that Hope reconciles what you just mentioned, Rachel, is that you, you get a little bit more love because that is something I do not get in the book. Like I, the yeah. whole time in that reading that story, I'm just like, all right, strict mom. And just, you know, she's going to keep a roof over her head, but hard love. I could see that. And I never really got any sort of, I just got ice the entire time. Yeah. And that's something, again, Mike, you're right. Like the POV shift is kind of strange. And in the book, Mm -hmm. they justify it a little more with the twinkling ability. With uh, Ted's abilities as a facilitator who can share his psychic abilities. 
but in the film it is kind of a strange jump and it's it, it does break some of the rules of storytelling yeah i mean dexter well, does goldman, every week so it's all right <laughs> i was gonna say william goldman you've got to master the rules before you can break them and he's definitely mastered them now he's yeah. just breaking them yeah so uh okay cool yeah let's talk about alan tudyk too because this was one of his earliest roles um and he's fantastic in this. I I mean, he's always good. He's just one of those like reliable hand actors. But I think it's a really key role, the the three card Monty dealer. And I think he because I think there's so much in the book that is about when you're a kid, you don't notice sort of the danger that lurks on the periphery. Right. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. that book, that story is very much about coming into awareness of them, like learning to see the low men as they exist outside of, you know, like once the, the kid goggles have been taken off, suddenly you can see the low men. And I think the three card Monty dealer is sort of the first indication of like that person who does not mean you well. Like this is not a guy who wants to play a game with you. This is a guy who wants to steal money from you. And the book and the movie, I think, both do a great job of showing that this guy guy is you know at first really you know personable and he wants to like play a game with you and he's really charming and charismatic but then when he starts losing you start to see like that anger come out and that to me is like that's that's something that would have terrified me when i was a kid you know like when you see that shift in his eyes and it's kind of like oh this guy does not mean me well at Mm -mm. all and that to me is like a really important theme of this story is that awareness that you know not everybody is your friend and um yeah so flieger your thoughts on on tudyk oh i was gonna say because in the book you know they talk about the low men in the dickensian sense of you know con man slick back hair and having the three card Monty player then shift to the actual low men in yellow coats, it's kind of it builds to them. Whereas in the yeah. movie, we don't really get to see the low men in yellow coats very often. They don't have a lot of screen time or dialogue. Mm-hmm. So Alan Tudyk kind of stands in as the villain of this film in a lot of ways. Um, you know, it's the adult that he pretends to be your friend, but you can see that he has contempt for these kids. And like you were saying, he <clears> does <throat> want to take their money. And it's sort of a lesson that, yeah. you know. We we talked about in the book episode the idea of the loss of childhood innocence, and he's a character that you can totally see Anton starting to realize, like, yeah, this guy is out to get me, and, you know, I need to have my wits about me when I deal with him. But he, he's just such a great actor, and, you know, I was going to say I'm a big fan of the Harley Quinn cartoon. and he, oh, does is the, he on that? He does the Joker and Clayface, and he's awesome. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, cool. Does he ever get in a room with Mark Hamill? And Mark Hamill's like... <laughs> Hey, you know, I uh, I kind of hallmarked that voice, asshole. Uh, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah th- great year for Tudyk, by the way. I mean, he he, you know, Wonder Boys. I I love Wonder Boys so much, and he's in that. But that same year, he's in a Knight's Tale, which was his real breakout. Role. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, when was that Dodgeball? Was a big role for him. Dodgeball was two years or three years later with the uh, in two thousand four. Pirate. <laughs> yeah, the pirate Steve the pirate. I love that. Um, Dodgeball is one of the stupidest fucking movies that I absolutely love. Yeah, like, it is such a bad movie, but I thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy it. Do you wish they had the original ending? Oh, where they lose? Yeah, yeah, yeah I the would bad love guys that. win. Yeah. yeah, that would have been. I think that would make the movie like perfect yeah uh, but yeah. yeah i can't imagine like the riots that would have happened no no they god actually released it people that. lose their minds i i did want to mention morris once because I, I he gets like no you know five three minutes yeah. maybe three minutes maybe give it three minutes four minutes i think four minutes is tops in this movie man morris is he's pretty great in this like the thing that i love about morris is how much he's able to say with his facial facial expressions he's very similar mm-hmm. to like steve mcqueen in that way like mcqueen infamously hated dialogue like just did not like it 
and you know obviously that's a big like well wait what you're a performer in hollywood but yeah but he was an icon that was able to say a lot with his face he's more of like he subscribed more to the silent era and i feel morse does that a lot like obviously we love his voice i mean love his voice but I love the way that he just kind of reacts to scenery sometimes. Like even in just the little bits and pieces of, you know, we get when he's like a photographer, there's a knowledge and like, I, I believe that he would be a photographer just in the same way. Like when you watch Langoliers, like I believe he's a pilot, even though as crazy as that movie is, I, I, there's just something about the way that he's able to exude that authority with just being a presence that I think is really important to note you know anytime we yeah, can talk yeah. about morris i try to like you know code it out there <laughs> he's just pure gravitas and mm-hmm. i think i think that he's great if you need him in a small role like that because mm-hmm. he can walk in barely say a word and convey like uh, decades of longing right <laughs> like mm-hmm. and i think that's why he's like great in this movie even though he really does not do much at all like he opens a letter uh talk and then you know wanders around a town his old childhood haunt that's been all busted up and that's pretty much all he does in this movie but that's you know he can carry such like a sense of um of history like on his shoulders and yeah. i think that uh so yeah he's he's wonderful in this like i think it's I, i'm sure he's on so many like if you look at his resume it's so massive and i think it's because so many casting producers are like we need a guy who can put a little bit of you know like we need a guy to be in a two-minute scene who can make us feel the weight of everything else that's happening you know yes so. that's exactly that's what it is it's like you can really like you feel like he has been through a lot of experiences, but at the same time, like he also just kind of like, he accepts it. He's not like broken by these experiences. He just understands like, yeah, these crazy wild things have happened. And this is, I'm just, I'm okay with all of it. Like he, it feels that way. I also just really want to um, touch his hair in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) That like little baby mullet he has going on. Like, Just be like, what is this? Love it. What's going on there? Um, Speaking of, uh, speaking of like that he wasn't, Bobby wasn't broken. That actually seems like a good segue into our next section, Nightmares and Dreamscapes. If you think your dreams are disturbing, (laughs) imagine the nightmares of Stephen King. What are you, some sort of a horror movie guy? No, Clyde, I'm a literary guy. The way I want to do Nightmares and Dreamscapes this time is a little bit different than normal. I Basically, I think there's a handful of big seismic changes from the story to the movie. Otherwise, I think it's pretty in line with what's in the text. But there's some really significant ones. And uh, I want to talk about Bobby's evolution from, you know, child to adult. But we can probably begin by talking just about the basic, the big change, which is that the low men are not agents of the dark tower as they are in the story here. They are essentially government, um, uh, you know, G men who are hunting for people with psychic abilities. And Scott Hicks told us that I think they were initially going to make it even more vague who the, the low men were uh, in the episode or in the movie, but audience test audiences didn't know, like they were just confused. Mm -hmm. So they added in the scenes about, um, about how the FBI and the CIA were like looking for people with those abilities, which is based on reality. Yeah. Um, you know, there was the Stargate project, which, uh, you know, was a government project, you know, that basically was helping to train and cultivate people who had psychic abilities to quote unquote, see events, sites, or information from a great distance. Uh, you know, the CIA says it, it was, it was uh, let go because they, you know, it, 
it didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, uh, who knows what we can trust there. Uh, the Men Who Stare at Goats, the John I was gonna say, story, yeah. is, is kind of a, it riffs on those ideas. But, you know, there's, a, there's some unsealed documents that have come out. Uh, U.S. used psychics to spy on Iran, CIA says. Obviously, do not trust anything the CIA says. But, uh, but you know, there are these documents that have been released about, you know, uh, the CIA recruited mind readers to spy on the Soviets. There's a lot of articles out there. Uh, that kind of unpack a lot of this stuff. So, um, and you know, I'm sure that there's some ties to that in MK Ultra and various other things. We'll be talking about all of this more in our upcoming Souls Midnight episode. Uh, we're going to be talking about, you know, MK Ultra things of that nature. It'll be very fun. Um, but Love yeah. the government. <laughs> you know, they're always great, and they're always really looking out for us in this country. They're looking especially. out for us. Um, so yeah. Um, so yeah. I. What do you guys think about this change? Uh, I. I mean, obviously, as much as I was disappointed when I first watched watched it it was obviously necessary you can't throw in a bunch of dark tower lore in a movie that stands on its own uh this is very much one of i think the bridge texts between wizard and glass and wolves of the cala there's several that were released in between those books that we talk about in our hearts in atlantis episodes but yeah how do you guys think this uh shift in storyline works does it work for you um is it clunky is it underdeveloped I think it actually works better, and I yeah. and I mean we talked about this over text, Randall, but I and I think you all kind of graced on this, like obviously in the books, but the book episodes. But I, uh, it makes me wish that King had actually leaned into the MK Ultra, like the the sort of reality of the government and what the government was capable of, then kind of lean on the Dark Tower because I just don't think it works in the overall thesis of the book. I mean, when you're talking about the you know, when you get into the other stories, which obviously this movie doesn't have the luxury of doing, it gets into the idea of just, you know, the government failing you, kind of having that 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 open eyes of realizing what you give and what you get out of, um, you know, service and, and everything that comes with it. And so I think that the themes of actually using government agents as opposed to low men, these alien creatures and stuff from another world, does I think it's a better move. And I do wish that it was in the book because I've read the Dark Tower series I mentioned earlier. And I can't even and that's and that's after, you know, with books that came after Hearts in Atlantis. So I can't even imagine what it would have been like for anyone that just picked up the book like at the airport as they do sometimes with Stephen King books and get to this section with low men. And then I guess you're like, all right, I don't really understand what's going on here. And then you get to the next sections, of, you know, in the next story and you, you have these emotional, this emotional journey that's really, really steeped in reality. And then to get to the end, and then I, I just imagine like a lot, a lot of passerbys finishing the book and being like, "What the fuck was up with that?" Like, <laughs> Loman guys, <laughs> that makes no sense. So I think it's a better addition. I and yeah. Anyway, long yeah, we got we got into it. that in the book episode about people who read this before the Dark Tower series. So, you know, and would they piece together that this is part of the Stephen King universe? I think we concluded they would, but they would also be like, "What is going on?" Right? There's mm-hmm. like no frame of reference. Um, I the one thing that the movie and I guess excuse the pun, I was like. I would have liked more of a red herring for like a red scare mm-hmm. as you know, implying that Ted might've been like a communist or something. Yeah. yeah. It seemed like that they could have emphasized a couple other points of why they might be going after him, but they never really teased it out that much. It was just government's coming after him and we don't know why. And there wasn't a lot of hinting or innuendo as to the reasons. I would have loved that, but I think especially around that time, and I was re- I was reading some other things, uh, comments from the director that I'll get to uh, in a little bit. But I think that there was this sense that they didn't want to 
uh, alienate anybody when they made this movie, which is perhaps why it can feel a little bit toothless. But I think the idea of making, I think it would have been more compelling if they had made him a communist, like you said, or at least hinted that he was a communist. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I think that they were probably too scared to have, like worried that audiences would turn on Ted if they thought he was a communist. <laughs> so, um. like based on some of the other things that they changed, and I'll talk about those in a minute. But, uh, but yeah, Rachel, what do you think um, about this shift in it? Um, and did I you it... watch the movie first, or you read it first? No, I, yeah, I, I listened. I read it first and then watched it. So I was like, oh, okay, so that that that's where they're going with this, and I thought it was very smart. Mm -hmm. Like that was, you know, considering the time period it takes place in and the abilities and the crossover, like, I do think that was a smarter way to approach it because yeah, if they had gone full dark tower, it would, which I kind of like, part of me is like, I kind of wish I saw that because the audacity of that would have been really (laughs) wild to kind of see to all of a sudden it's just like, what is, what the fuck is happening here? But I did think that, you know, that one little insert scene of like, oh, FBI is looking yeah. for psychics. Like it made a lot of sense. That said, I do wish they had built that up a little bit more because I do feel like the first real altercation um, at the end with the low men is a little disappointing. Yeah. And it feels very like, you know, just like a hazy neon noir moment in that mm-hmm. alleyway. And I kind of wish that there was a few more you know, brushes with the low men to like show that they were really kind of onto Ted's trail. Yeah. It's hinted at there's like one sign that he tears down, but kind of other than that, it's pretty uneventful as far as that little storyline goes. So I did feel like they could have done more with it. However, the explanation underneath it did make a lot of sense. I thought and it was, it was a smart writing choice i think well, one thing that was not a smart writing choice was they did not focus enough on steven little the actor <laughs> yeah, who was right. from eastbound and down as steven jankowski um he actually he played one, one of the, the low men, men yeah. and i was looking for him so hard because i love that character from eastbound down so much um but I think yeah. he's just in like a passing shot and i was just like on the rewatch that's all yeah, i, I totally was looking forward him. to was him as a low man Um, Yeah, and a sad thing, too, about the shift, and you sort of hinted at this, Rachel, I do think ultimately it was the smart, probably wise move to do for the movie, but you lose some of the eeriness of um, the kite strings and the, the stars and the moon and the pet signs, like, because I think when you root it in sort of, you know, humanity and reality... Uh, those things just make a lot less sense because we they're operating on their own, like they're operating on human logic. Like the cool thing about the low men is that they're this sort of alien. Uh, they have this alien logic that we don't understand. So the stars and the moons and the kite tails and all of the weird things that they use to communicate, it can be weird and obtuse and a little creepy because we don't need to understand their logic. We don't. But here it's like, why would CIA agents be doing that? You know, or like, why would they be driving garish cars and dressing garishly? Like, didn't those guys just wear black? And and in the book, the way that they describe like the cars and them like shifting, like not really being there, like not really being like a solid form is like so creepy and eerie. And then like the itching behind the eyes and like, like feeling their presence and stuff like that that is so scary I feel like and is conveyed really well in the book and so yeah you, you lose all of that with them being yeah like just like you said like grounded in reality and so that that yeah. is kind of a bummer and the symbols like sketched out everywhere like on hopscotch right yeah they totally eliminated all the cantoy mythology which you know would have been great to see in a film it wouldn't have worked but just selfishly I would have loved to have seen 
yeah. um, a little bit of exploration into the low men and who they actually are. And yeah, I just wish we got like at least one scene or like one real scene that where they actually engage because they're such like fly by night, uh, like these sort of ephemeral passing figures that um, I don't think the effect that could work, but I don't think that effect necessarily lands. Um, I wanted them to be, to have a little bit more of a threatening presence that um, I don't know that Bobby could encounter face to face. Yeah. Um, I think you could have done more of the teasing out with like the balloons and the signs. I mean, all you have to do is just have it him digress a little bit more on these sort of, you know, token messaging that they would have throughout their or like secret messaging, just kind of hint at it. <laughs> and, and I think that would have worked really well. Like I, 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 and it would have added a little bit more suspense to it because my, my ultimately my, my biggest gripe of this movie is the fact that the, the meat of it doesn't really add to, you know, to the, to the buns. Like it, it really doesn't like the, I mean, it doesn't <laughs> I mean, to use as a, the, the as <laughs> use an analogy or, you know, metaphor, like the bookends, like what are we I mean even the final line doesn't add up with the relationship for me it just doesn't yeah. like you know when he says um oh he says uh next time you drive <laughs> yeah right no <laughs> Uh, no, no, he says, oh, what Ted did was open my eyes and let the future in. And I wouldn't have missed a minute of it. Not for the world. It's like that. If yeah. I wrote that as my like final kicker in like an essay, the teacher would be like, all right, nice line. Very beautiful writing. But it doesn't connect at all with the rest with, with the sentiments of what your piece is. Like it just really doesn't to me. Like it, it kind of felt sort of like, a, well, I need a button here. And, yeah, I think uh, I can. I have a lot of thoughts on this because we, Rachel, you had mentioned this idea that uh, Bobby hadn't been broken, you know, in yeah. in uh, in this movie, whereas he very much was in the story. Mm-hmm. In the story, Bobby is, you know, the fact that he has opened up, his eyes are open to the breath of the world, the darkness of the world, the complexity of the world. Uh, the innocence is gone, and and kind of the darkness is rushed into a certain degree, and that is very disturbing. I think for a lot of kids when they hit that moment where they stop being children and. For Bobby, it's like it in the book, it manifests that he becomes sort of a juvenile delinquent. He becomes a troublemaker. He gets in trouble with the law a lot. He kind of starts spiraling into darkness. He loses touch with a lot of his friends. Um, And that's not to say that happens to everybody. But for Bobby's character, I found that incredibly impactful. Um, And it doesn't seem like he has that moment in the movie because like how do I phrase this? Like at the end, he has the bike, right? Like they add the mm-hmm. button of him buying the bike that he longed for. In the story, the bike is forgotten because mm-hmm. the bike is a thing of childhood, right? Yep. And by the end, it's like, well, I don't, I'm, I'm not thinking about those things anymore because my my mind has been consumed by things that aren't just like the the bike I want, the game I want, whatever. And and so that kind of like the the feeling we get is that at the end of the movie is that this was an enriching. Uh, experience for Bobby rather than sort of a traumatizing one. And I think the thing in the book, it's both, but here we kind of just get that sense that, okay, well, Bobby had this uh, sort of, you know, weird experience. um, But all it really amounted to was the sense of like, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Right, Mike? Like, Mm -hmm. that's what he says. Yeah. And then he gets the bike and then he grows up to be a famous photographer, you know? But, uh, and so the, there isn't much of an arc there Mm -mm. that I see. There's no struggle. Yeah, there's no struggle, really. Uh, And I mean, I so the movie by the end kind of just melts a little bit into kind of a vague, uh, like, exploration of nostalgia and loss, which is fine, but it's kind of just sits there. 
Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like they're like it's not really about lost innocence. It's more just about losing our childhoods. And uh and you know, it Which seems I like don't bo- even... yeah. I don't know. I just even that just kind of fa- falls flat a little bit because again, I agree. It's like, yeah, it, it's just so many. I feel like the movie is beautiful, and I feel like it. It. It certainly. I, I feel like Goldman was able to smooth out a lot of the things, and the fact that he doesn't get to. I feel like he kind of gets to reconcile a little bit of the fact that he's not going to be able to work with the three other, four other stories in this. Well, three technically because he's using the 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 last one, Heavenly Shades, but. I don't, th- I think it by, by him smoothing things out, he for- forgets to kind of go back to what are the key conflicts here, you know, and how can I beef those up? Because we don't, you know, as we mentioned before, like, you know, his relationship with, with, with Liz is kind of softened, you know, the relationship with Ted is arguably softened. Like we don't even really get the scene when they're really hanging out one-on-one together with babysitting. Like that's a huge part of the book. Yeah. And like, we only get like a little bits and pieces of it. You know, he gets to go even like the the relationship with his dad seems kind of couched. Like we don't get a scene with him and John. So it all feels as if we have, you know, I mentioned earlier about how like, well, Goldman leans a lot on montage for building up these relationships with his friends kind of does the same thing with all the other conflicts in this movie. Like there's a lot of like showing there's not a lot of like purpose behind the showing. It's all just very like, oh, okay, well, that's how that character got from point A to point B. But we really don't see the the the, the sort of journey. Yeah. yeah, they also removed. There's the the sense of menace is missing too when mm-hmm. he goes to oh, the totally. part of town. Yeah. Um, yeah, in the book, you know, there's like hoodlums and gangsters, and they're kind of harassing him and threatening to mug him, and he has to take off running. Whereas in this, he kind of goes to the CD bar and fits in. You know, it doesn't. I don't know. It it loses some of that tension that the book builds to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree, and it just seems that in having to excise certain parts of the narrative, it just seems like. Goldman can never quite get his arms around the themes he's trying to Mm -hmm. tell here, you know, like because he has to sort of move the darkness that is so inherent to this story. He's trying to excise that as much as he can. But in doing so, it just becomes sort of a vague nostalgia piece by the end, which is why the focus shifts so heavily to Carol later on, which is just really bizarre to me. And it doesn't quite work. It feels like he might have been thinking a lot about the rest of the book. Um, where Carol is this sort of heavenly uh, specter that kind of all the men are obsessed with her to some degree. But but yeah, here it's like that relationship never crystallizes enough for us to feel as if there was some great loss when him and Carol split, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, yeah, like because that seems to be the thing that haunts Bobby the most as an adult was his relationship with Carol. But it was they were kids, you know, <laughs> it's like, does anyone really like idolize their like 11 year old girlfriend to that degree? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that they could have done. I mean, like the whole conceit of him being this popular photographer and there's a lot of stuff to do. Like, you know, Hicks does a lot with the still photography, too, throughout the movie. Like you could have made it where we were watching Bobby contend with the reality of the, f- the the photograph you know like this idea that you're capturing these memories you're having them forever but they're the past is the past and the past is gone like you know the past can haunt you but the past is gone that is a construct that is just behind you you can't get back to it and and eventually the you will be gone too and that that, that theme, those themes of mortality could have been wrestled with a little bit more but it just doesn't. It just never does. It just kind of seems sort of this like, well, duh. 
You know, oh, he yeah. opened my eyes and let the future in. Well, yeah, but so <laughs> could, you, you know, the strife with your mother or the fact that you're moving or I don't know, growing up like that just that just sound, felt like such a duh revelation that was kind of given a lot of ornaments to look nice. And it just that was my problem with it. So, yeah, the other thing, too, I think that contributes to the toothlessness is uh, when Bobby beats up Harry Doolin after Carol has been you know assaulted. He he attacks Harry in the same way he does in the book, but it's more out of self-defense. And Scott Hicks said in the, the commentary of the DVD, he said uh, the audience would lose sympathy for Bobby unless um, instead of being planned, it was self-defense. And in the script, it was premeditated. Like, that's the thing is it's a premeditated attack on Harry, which shows sort of Bobby's innocence slipping away. Right. Mm-hmm. Like he's returning violence with violence. And um, because that's the cruelty of the world, that's really the only way to get justice, really. And uh, and that's an ugly truth. But it seems like there's not a lot of place for ugly truths in this in this film adaptation, whereas the book is all about that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I have to wonder if they had actually been a bit truer to those aspects, if it would have been received differently. Yeah, yeah. because, you know, for a lot of people, 9-11 was a big (laughs) like reality check about, you know, our place in the world and our government and a lot of other things that we don't need to get into. But sure, you know, so if they actually had kind of explored that idea more about the actual like reality seeking, you know, seeping into a child's life. Like if that would have impacted people's reception of it, because it would have been more honest and it would yeah. have shown that, yeah, these things do impact your life and they do affect you. They, you let the future in and it does impact your life. You don't just mm-hmm. ride off into mm-hmm. the sunset. Yeah, which is literally what he does yeah. Yeah. at the end of the, the end of the story. Yeah. Uh, then there's Atlantis. So this is just kind of funny, which is that the book's called Hearts in Atlantis. Because there's a story called Hearts in Atlantis that is about college kids getting addicted to a card game and almost flunking out of college and being drafted in the Vietnam War. And Hearts in Atlantis becomes, for me at least, and we talk about this a lot in our episode, a metaphor for, I think, the obliviousness of, you know, quote unquote, childhood before sort of, you know, because there's a the similar sense of awareness that comes to these college students who recognize the real world and what Vietnam represents and uh, hiding in this game of car- of cards in order to not have to acknowledge the realities of the outside world. But here it kind of just gets repackaged um, because I don't think they could call a major motion picture low men in yellow coats. <laughs> could you imagine? I don't think anybody <laughs> would see that. But and Hearts in Atlantis has is a pretty title in its own way, but it's funny. So they basically, uh, you know, Hearts in Atlantis has no bearing whatsoever in Low Men in Yellow Coats. So uh, Goldman inserts a line or two, uh, and Scott Hicks even laughs about it in our in our interview uh, that it it's pretty wedged in. You know, when you're young, you have moments of such happiness. You think you're living in someplace magical, like Atlantis must have been. <laughs> then we grow up, and our hearts break in two. Oh God, and- yeah. It's a little- <laughs> And the heart's breaking too is is a line from Low Men, but yeah, he's trying to find profundity and and wedge this concept of Atlantis into this story. And and even when the line is said, it's like while the kids are all playing, and Anthony Hopkins is like just sitting in a chair, just saying it into the wind. 
end. Yes, it it's is. Like it's, yeah. It like slows down and they're like laughing in slow motion. And it's just, it's very excessive. It, yeah, it just doesn't really, really work. And I think that speaks in some degree, like just that simple concept of like, oh, childhood was this magical place. And it's like, yeah, that is uh, to some degree, but that's like a, a, the, the, a massive oversimplification of what King is actually doing with that metaphor yeah. in the story. How how impactful the, the metaphor is in the actual story is something we debate in our episode, but it's, uh, you know, there's that. And then I think the last thing we can talk about in this section is probably one of Goldman's biggest contributions to uh, the script, which is kind of a big monologue that Ted tells about a football player named Bronco Nagurski, um, who is a Canadian-American football player, um, played for Chicago, and he had this game where against all odds defeated the Chicago Cardinals in the 1940s. This event is a touchstone by which Bobby can remember his father. Um, and that's me reading the trivia off IMDb because it helped. It's helpful. Uh, but um, <laughs> Hopkins said Bill Goldman wrote about this experience when he watched Nagurski, a great, great football player back in the 40s. It's a beautiful allegorical little scene, which I was very pleased with. Um, and screenwriter William Goldman said of it in the film, we learned that Bobby's father and Ted saw Bronco Nagurski in this marvelous football game. And so I think that monologue tries to fulfill a lot of things it um tries to paint this this or draw this line between ted and bobby's father the idea that they existed in the same place one time together and it helps crystallize whatever image this is of his father that he's never really had before which is combined with when he goes to the bar and the people remember his father there and this is another thing that i think is a touch unexplored in the movie because bobby's realization that he's only been shown one side of his father for his entire life is part of the resentment that builds up in him for his mother. Uh, he feels that she has not, you know, told him, hasn't been honest with him about his father and what he represented. And I think this is the effort there to show that, that there was this, um, you know, that Ted existed with his father in this place and they both watched this, like, this, like, marvelous uh, moment of a football player overcoming all adversity and bringing together this whole stadium full of people to cheer for him yeah they call um, it, uh, taking over the game um, yeah it's did anyone watch the power of the dog yeah um, there's the, they always talk about bronco henry in that in yeah. like nostalgic terms so i was watching that movie as i was watching this and i was like i kept picturing <laughs> that bronco being taken over the game <laughs> the old cattle wrestler <laughs> check it out good movie uh, was this uh was this did this work for you guys was this impactful i felt like this was the biggest like moment where you can believe that Ted and Bobby are bonding because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that is something I kind of just like Mike was saying earlier like that that relationship developing is so well done in the book and kind of slowly and it feels very rushed in the movie that that scene is so pivotal because for the first time you really see them connecting over something and you see Bobby and him having that bonding moment so without that major scene their relationship would have felt so inauthentic and so I really think that, and I like how they tied it back to like when, you know, Bobby saves Carol, how he kind of like taps into this and is like, okay, he crawled to the, the goal line and like, I yeah. can crawl up this hill too. So I did like how they brought it back. So I, it worked on multiple levels for me yeah. anyways. And also like the, the fact that I think Ted was at that game, right. With his father, it, it, he gets yeah. to see it through his father's eyes and the book yeah, does a little bit of a better job. You know, when he goes to the bar and the bartender's like, oh, your father was like a generous man. He was funny people liked him and you know we were talking about he doesn't get a lot of exposure to his father other than his mother's biased opinion of him 
So in this movie, them talking about that game gives Anton something to work off. And you can see him mm-hmm. being like, oh, my dad. I, you know, I'm mm-hmm. craving every second of a story I can hear about the man that I never really got to know. Also, Yelchin's performance in that is scene yeah. is so great. He's mm-hmm. so adorable and just like truly seems like he's like actually interested in this story that Hopkins yeah. is telling him. He reminds me so much of like young Elijah Wood. Like he just yeah. has this oh, sparkle yeah. in his eye and he, he just mm-hmm. I, he's so good in this movie. Yeah, I, I mean, the monologue works. I, I just feel like, you know what this kind of reminds me of? And this is not too much of a slam on the movie because it's certainly not this low, but you know, and like how we always make fun of 2017's The Dark Tower, where like, you know, like Cujo will pop up or something like that, yeah. you know, like Christine. <laughs> I just kind of feel like there are parts of this that Goldman just like dropped things in the book for like, I guess, narrative say, I don't know, no, just for the fact that like, well, it's in the book. So I guess we could kind of toss in there like the library card. It means like absolutely nothing in this movie. And it's like mm-hmm. you, you could have easily used that as a way to do the same thing that you're doing here with this monologue. Like why go off and do something like this when you could have had him talking about the books, you know, and Lord like, of the flies. Yeah. Like it's such a big part in the book. <laughs> like they talk about it at length. They, yeah. I guess you're right. They could have had that bond, that same bonding moment. Yeah. Like with I, something from the book. <laughs> it just feels like so uh, like you haphazardly throw it in and it's, oh I got a you know a library card so, oh library cards are good Bobby and you know it's just like <laughs> I don't know like you could have gone into that a little bit more it just felt like almost like a token for like the readers like oh remember this well this plays up the majority of the story we're not gonna do it so it just feels very weird like it, it feels like the Cujo moment in the Dark Tower for me where it was just like why is this in the book like or sure movie, sure or, sure you know anyway that's my digression on it um, but I mean, like things I, I mean, because the section we talk about things we love sometimes too. I, I did love, I do like this movie. That's the thing. Like, I think a lot of it is just the direct. I, I like Hicks' direction a lot, and not just because he's on, you know, the the fucking show. But I do think that the direction of this movie is really sharp. Like, I, I you know, I disagree wholeheartedly with the reviews that we talked about before because I think that the the portraits here are gorgeous. Like, I think that you know, it's so easy to do these nostalgic movies and really just have literal rose tinted lenses. And I don't think that's the case here. Like, I do think that he has a really cool style to the past and the, and the present, you know, with the present being this sort of like blue tones and then the past being these sort of, um, they're, they have golden art that there's like a golden f- finesse to them, but they don't feel like the sort of pseudo dreamy, golden arches that are in like the green mile per se you know like you watch the green mile and you're like wow this really does feel like it's coming from the mind of like a you know an 80 year old that's re- or uh, in that case 100 something year old looking back on its past this is not so much the case like it, i just feel like it, it, it's it's him doing like classic americana in, yeah. and without being too saccharine you know but yeah any other thoughts on the changes between the book and the movie before we hop on to our next section Oh. Cool. <laughs> let's let's merge together our next two sections into one because I can't imagine we're gonna have uh, a ton of pound cake or a ton of cemetery. So let's call this uh, semi cake. After all you've been taught, everyone in bad mama, everything in the sin. Person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. Come to your closet and pray. Ask to be forgiven. But it ain't that person. He's a nice boy, mom. You like him? You really like him, mama? Welcome to semi cake, where we talk about. The scary parts and the horny parts of this story in one section. Semen cake. Semen. Oh cake. my gosh. Semic. Sorry. Semic. Semic. All right now. Yeah. <laughs> Anything genuinely scary in this story, or in this movie, or or horny? I don't yeah, know okay. if there's any. 
yeah scary not in the traditional sense i found some of the you know the words used at certain points a little it's like okay those don't sit well that scene doesn't sit well you know some of the the homophobic dialogue that happens and then also the rape scene is i mean rape scenes in any movie Mm -hmm. can be really hard i kind of hated how they didn't come back to that i don't know i feel like they did a better job of addressing that in the book and it's kind of like impact and how bobby received that information so there's that yeah i think the bullying is just that's the you know nobody likes being bullied as a kid and that's probably the scariest part it's just older kids especially when they're riding around with you know baseball bat and this weird sling yeah i would have loved if like the low men to been more like scarier like i i would have I would have liked to have some more menacing low men lurking about, but those scenes kind of were, I don't know. It felt very noirish to me, not quite so scary yeah. as they were atmospheric. Yeah. The rape scene with, uh, with Carol and her boss is, is unnervingly shot, but I do agree. It's, it kind of happens. And then it's to show that, I don't know. I feel like you have to give us some kind of follow-up with it. You have to tease that out a little bit more. We have to see more of of um, Liz sort of coming back from that. And it kind of just feels like a plot point here, you mm-hmm. know? And yeah. I think that's uh, that's always tough because, you know, Bobby rides off into the sunset, but how's she doing, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. Like, you can't just show us that and then leave us, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know, not really give her that ending that pays that off to some degree. I mean... Um, on the the more pound cake side, I thought that was kind of funny that, you know, out of all the things, I, I just, you know, went on a rant about how, you know, Goldman just kind of cherry picked a lot of stuff in the book, certainly remembers the farts. Uh, and <laughs> what was kind of funny, like, uh, is the fact that I guess the farts were were actually hard to sell on uh, Yelchin because uh, Dan talked about it earlier, but he was raised and, in, 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 you know, not only smiling was taboo, but laughing with an open mouth with mouth was uh, impolite and so it wasn't really nat he wasn't natural at doing that sort of laughter you know and when they had that close-up of a shot of like anton reacting hopkins had to bark like a dog or something like that <laughs> so it was kind of funny i mean just that the fact that this something is so simple as just like doing these farts on screen turned out to be like all right how are we going to figure this out you know like i just thought that was a an interesting way of king's obsession with flatulence and and scatological humor turned out proved to be a hurdle for, for hicks yeah. and yelchin it, it really is like it's the final line in the movie is him doing the mm-hmm. raspberry noise and his mom being like bobby oh um one one other thing in pound cake not really pound cake but when liz sort of manipulates the boy in the bike store into getting the other bike oh, i thought yeah. that oh, was kind of an, or is it carol sorry um yeah i thought that was an interesting moment where she kind of goes in with the, you know female charms and it's like i think this bike is better so that she mm-hmm. can preserve it for bobby and they mentioned it in the commentary, but later on you see that boy riding the bike and he's the paper boy. Oh. But it's so subtle oh, that if it wasn't pointed out, that. you wouldn't get it. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, I guess the one thing that did kind of, this is more of a, I guess, a cerebral cemetery for me was, I didn't realize this until I watched it a second time. Yep, I watched it two times in the last three weeks. But uh, <laughs> how about that? But when Morse is uh, older, Bobby like does the condensation with the two lines, the whole movie takes place in that like one gasp of him just sitting there and i guess getting older and especially you know look we're five years into this podcast now the concept of time and how you deal with it and you carry it as you get older is something that has really stuck with me and especially something i think about a lot 
on a day-to-day basis because, you know, you're reminded of it through social media now. You know, that wasn't the case years and years ago. Now, every time you log online, someone's saying like, oh, this happened five years ago. This happened seven years ago. This happened 13 years ago. And I think as technology consistently gets better at capturing things and showing us these things and reminding us these things, it is kind of scary how fast like our immortality is. And I think that was something that was one thing I was thinking about a lot when he's coming back to the house, you know, and just seeing the dilapidated construct of the house and knowing what it used to be. It's just, I don't know. I, as someone who has to spend a lot of time away from home where I'm from South Florida, you know, I only get back there every few years now, every time I go back, parts of the past are being erased and that reminder of social media of telling you like, oh, how fast time is going, but then seeing it in real time when you're going back after these moments, kind of like what Bobby does here and seeing how fast things can be erased. It's kind of scary. Like it, it is scary. And I, yeah, it, there's a line that I don't remember being in the story, but so it might be a Goldman original, but David Moore says, why do we always expect home to stay the same? Nothing mm-hmm. else. Yeah. Does. Yeah. I thought that was a really nice line. And I did think it was affecting him walking through his old neighborhood and seeing it all, you know, uh, mm-hmm. in disrepair. That's, you know, that's extremely yeah, sad. I, Although, I think, yeah, okay. I was just going to say, I did. I do admit that as he was doing it, I tried to suppress this voice, but I heard a voice saying, this is where we used to live. <laughs> you remember that song? Oh, God. The Bare Naked uh, Ladies song? Yeah, yeah. Um, what if they did have Bare Naked Ladies on this? <laughs> They're they have a lot of well. needle drops in this movie. They could have easily done it, you know. Dan, what were you? Yeah, saying? no, I was gonna say the easy peasy Japanese would work its way into the bare naked ladies lyrics, probably. But oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. No, but I think like, it goes kind of what Mike was saying, though. It goes to the point of Atlantis too, of like, you know, this place, this where you're from, but now it can only be viewed through these sort of murky depths, right? It's yeah. mm-hmm. it's no longer there, and it's kind of that vision of the past, which it, it is interesting that it happens in 11 seconds you know, the time that he writes on the window, but I, I don't mm-hmm. think that was communicated well in the movie. I, I wouldn't have made that connection just as a viewer who went in critically uh, examining this. I, it just, that didn't occur to me, but it, it is interesting. It's like when you have a dream and it seems like it's forever and then you check and you're like, Oh, I only slept for an hour, but yeah, yeah. it felt like a lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. You could say that's oh, life in it, general. Time is, time is the old bald cheater. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh. Um. Okay, cool. Let's talk about, King's Dominion. <laughs> There's another world out there. I know there is. Here in King's Dominion, we talk about the connections between King's work, uh, larger, the multiverse, and this <laughs> particular thing that we are discussing. Uh, there, This is in the book, but it's also here. Mention of the library policeman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish we could have seen Mr. Library Policeman, perhaps in the background. <laughs> oh, um, no, From four past midnight, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, any others that you noticed? I have one that's a bit of a room two, three, seven. There's the platters. I mean, the platters are all throughout this book. Yeah. So it's nice that they use that. Uh, um, yeah. Santo and Johnny's do that song Sleepwalk from Sleepwalkers inspiration oh, mm. Sleepwalkers that is true yeah that's that song always poem. scared the hell out of me too it still does it's, a, it's an eerie because I think they use in the movie La Bamba and I think that was a movie that was on my VHS tapes growing up and I didn't that was like kind of like my first brush with like tragedy and death I think was Jeez. like learning about the story of La Bamba and so I think I just always associated that song 
with this like ominous like you're gonna get caught by death you're gonna get caught by death like, oh yeah the end of la bamba the end of the movie i saw like it like haunted me mm-hmm. oh yeah <laughs> that's what i'm saying like and the, and that song is playing over it and i just remember as a kid being like what the uh, alan tudyk's character just again he says that phrase easy peasy japanesey and that's also said in the shawshank redemption mm, yeah there it is um, i guess obviously castle rock which we already mentioned yeah, did yeah. a number of king uh, features. Yeah. Bobby says, I won't let the boogeyman get you. <laughs> oh, Bozeman. Uh, yeah, so Mr. Bozeman makes a little appearance here. Maybe this, <laughs> maybe that'll pop up in uh, the Rob Savage's adaptation of the boogeyman that's coming yeah. out. Yeah, they'll be like, oh, do you know a Bobby Garfield? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh. Cool. Any other King's Dominion in this one? Not a, not I mean, a this is... This is a stretch, but you know, like the drainage tunnel where they're like shown, uh, like <laughs> running under, and then the tracks they're like playing on the train tracks. So. We love we love a good stretch in King's Dominion. Yeah, a stand yeah. by me stretch is felt like what they were going for. But. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Yeah. What? Um, is, oh, they're at the funeral. If you look closely, you see Jamie Sheridan uh, standing off. In the <laughs> yeah. He reprised his role as Randall Flagg, <laughs> yeah. standing in the uh, background of that scene. Yeah. Um, okay. Cool. Let's talk about our final thoughts. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. (laughs) Okay, I'll be right there. You said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. Okay, and final thoughts, we share our bright red Pennywise clown nose ranking and our MVP of this story. Rachel, kick us off. How many noses are you going to give Hearts in Atlantis, and who is your MVP? I give the movie Hearts in Atlantis three and a half bright red Pennywise clown noses. And my MVP is Anton. Yeah. I think it's just such a beautiful portrait of such, you know, a talented individual, just like right at the beginning of their career. It breaks my heart watching it, but at the same time, like it's also just so wonderful that we have this and you have this you know, him playing off of Hopkins, I think is just really lovely, you know, regardless of how you feel about the story or the movie or whatever, like those moments, I think it's just, it's part of what makes movies so magical, just seeing them play off of each other, these two people at two different parts of their lives. And just knowing now looking back, you know, 20, hindsight is 2020 looking back and seeing that moment, I think is just really special. Yeah. I do feel like that overall there, the movie feels a little bit rushed to me and I f- would have liked to have seen more develop of that relationship, maybe take out a few scenes that could have been eliminated to just kind of let the story breathe and develop to kind of, just like we were saying, encompass and really dive into some of those themes that the the book does so well that it felt like they just didn't have the time to, which I understand, but at the same time to make it be an effective film it would have been nice to have seen those themes and relationships and feelings explored a little bit more but I don't think it it was as harsh as uh you know some of those reviews (laughs) seem to think it's a you know it's a real bummer that it came out when it did I think people just weren't in the right mindsets to see it and but I'm glad I didn't see it then because I wasn't in the right mindset either. I would not have received it well when it did come out. I wasn't in that right space. I wasn't, I don't, that's just not what I was looking for at that time in my life. So it was a real, it was a real joy to visit it and read the book um, in tandem 
with watching the movie. It's really cool to see them both put together and see those changes and what they did because there's a lot of logic behind it. So I think they did pretty good with what they had. Yeah. Flieger, how about you? Yeah, I think this is a movie that ages pretty well. Um, going back and watching it, I found I was getting really sucked into it a lot more than my first viewing when it came out. There's enough substance there. There's enough heart there that you can pull moments out of it. I don't think overall it works. It needs to be polished. I think there needs to be a few changes, but it is a perfectly serviceable movie, which is sort of, you know, the worst thing you'd say about a movie is that it's all right. You know, it doesn't take any big swings or anything, but I think as a companion to reading the book and then following up with this and especially getting Anton's performance against Hopkins, I think that's really special that we got to see him, you know, as a young boy act against this, you know, knighted actor. And I was going on YouTube trying to find reactions to Anton's death and trying to get Anthony Hopkins to hear his thoughts. I couldn't find it, but I just ended up going down a rabbit hole of actors responding. And I think Mike's River Phoenix comment is very apt that this was a young man that really had a lot of potential and it was starting to show very early on. You know, Green Room was my favorite movie the year it came out. And it's just, you know, it's such a tragedy. So I think going back and being more open to appreciating it for what it was made it a more enjoyable experience. Um, for that reason, you know, it's not Prestige King quite like Green Mile. I would say three and a half bright red Pennywise clown noses. And I got to go Anton for MVP. Um, nice. Just really worth it just for his performance alone. Yeah. Mike. Uh, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, there are blemishes in this movie and I've talked about all of them. I mean, I'm probably going to echo a lot of thoughts I had earlier on when I was talking about my first time seeing this because you know, this is the first time I watch it. But uh, for me, the movie comes across more like a nostalgic relic. You know, I mean, I feel like it's such a time capsule of an era of Hollywood where, you know, as I mentioned before, like mid-level dramas were still being doled out every weekend. And it's just not the case. It's just not the case at all. And like now we have to have like temple Oscar movies to be able to be dramas on a mainstream level. And even those these days have to have some fucking IP, which is why, you know, like Nightmare Alley and West Side Story are remakes. Um, and even those are fading fast because they just got toppled by the, you know, the Oscars. And then you have Disney. Yeah, nobody's seeing them. Disney cobbling up all the Fox movies and releasing them on the same weekend with their, you know, their major, you know, IP. Awesome. Great job, Mouse House. But uh <laughs> Anyway, um, <laughs> for me, I, I kind of did feel like Bobby wa- uh, walking through, you know, his hometown watching this movie. It just felt me. It just was nostalgic for a, a more innocent time when you could just get a nice story with nice performances and a nice send off. Like, you know, not every movie needs to be like like we were saying, Prestige King, like a Shawshank movie. Um, and so I, I don't know. I kind of wish we could get more of those these days. So for me. I'm going to give it three bright, bright, wed, bright, wed, Pennywise clown noses. And, um, but I'm going to give it a little root beer, you know, for, so you can have it with the afternoon wash. Cause I think this is a great afternoon flick. You know, if it's a Sunday afternoon, hearts in Atlantis, it's on HBO max right now. It's a good, good watch. Good watch in the afternoon. Anyway. Did you have an MVP? Oh, MVP is Anton. It's, it, it's Anton. I mean, it's, I love Hopkins in this movie. I think he's great, especially when he's kind of doing his own monologues by himself, like on the corner of the, the porch. But, um, it, Anton is great. Like it, this is you watch this movie for Anton now. So yeah, um, yeah. This is a movie that's kind of more about vibes and and performances than uh, than story. I think it kind of falters in in kind of piecing together the thematic threads. I think that, and I, I said this a lot in our two episodes about Hearts in Atlantis, but I think it's King's 
if not the, but one of the most thematically complex things he's written uh, from top to bottom. I think he's really getting at some big ideas and really reckoning. And this is something he did with it, with a lot of his stories. He writes about children a lot. He writes about childhood a lot. There's a lot that he's, I think he's just a very nostalgic person in general. And I think he's really reckoning with a lot of his nostalgia and the darkness uh, that comes with adulthood when he's writing stories like this. And but he's he's not just doing a general love letter, quote unquote, to like nostalgia or or childhood or any of those things in the book. It's more complicated than that. And this book stabs at that complexity or the movie stabs at the complexity, but it can't fully wrap its arms around it. So it kind of just dribbles into a uh, kind of just a general childhood was great. This guy was really important to me. Uh, you know, it had its rough patches, but I grew up and I'm a successful photographer. And it's like, I just don't buy that. He's, you know, the whole kind of like, like, where is the struggle? Like, mm-hmm. that's the thing that's interesting about Bobby in the book is that, you know, a lot of this stuff does break him. And that results in a more thematically rich and more interesting story. I think that there is a two. I, I like this movie more now than I did when I first watched it but I still think that there's a bit of a toothless quality to it but I uh, but yeah I don't need it to be some um I don't know epic story I like I like the the budget I like you know I'm everything you said Mike I agree with which is I wish we had more movies like this that existed in this mid-range and that weren't trying to break the bank or uh win all the Oscars it was just a well-acted movie with a lot of really talented people um and yeah, I don't know. There's something nice and comforting about that. Yeah. So I'm going to give MVP it, also. Don't forget. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, three, three, three and a half bright red Pennywise clown noses. And my MVP is Anton. I usually be like, I'm usually a smart ass when I do these MVPs, but I'm going to say Anton because he's 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 so good. And it yeah. was his first movie and it's just heartbreaking. And I think that that gives it a lot of extra weight when you're watching it. So. So that's Hearts in Atlantis, folks. Um, This was really fun to discuss. Stick around because we've got a 45 or so minutes with the Mm -hmm. director, Scott Hicks, and it's great. He's lovely. He shows us some first editions that uh, Robert Louis Stevenson books that Anthony Hopkins gave him. It's really cool. And um, yeah, so this was fun. Thank you guys for chatting about it with me. Uh, Listen to our other Hearts in Atlantis episodes if you haven't already. And stay tuned for our Souls Midnight episode where we're going to be talking about G-Men and uh and well g-men but also just kind of government conspiracy i'm sure we'll have a lot of black pill uh thoughts there's on gonna that be one. a lot of black pill thoughts <laughs> yeah. there so stay tuned for that you can access that with uh on our patreon patreon.com slash the barons uh we just kind of restructured the the tiers to make it all a little bit more simple so check it out we've got five dollars and ten dollar tiers and uh yeah let's sign off long days and, and pleasant, pleasant nights Oh, hello, folks. I'm Ted Brodigan. I'll be living upstairs for a while. You're a very strange person. Shh, tell no one. <laughs> Did you feel okay? Just listen to my voice. Wake up. My voice. What just happened? Hello, Scott. Hi, how are you going? Good, um, how are you doing? Yeah, good. Hi, Scott. I'm you? I'm Randall. Nice to meet you. Hi, Randall. How are you going? I've got my kitty kitty in the background saying hello. So, <laughs> no, I think she's doing something else. <laughs> That's true. That is true. If she's saying if she's saying hello, I'm not there. <laughs> <laughs>
well, thank you so much for doing this. I'm Mike Rothman. Uh, Hi, Mike. How are you going? Yeah, so we've been. I'm good. I'm good. You know, it's uh, it's windy and kind of warm here in Chicago. So it's, yeah, it's uh, like okay. sixty you know, degrees. Sixty degrees today. It's not bad. No, okay. you know? How how's, how are things? You're in Adelaide. Uh, I'm in Adelaide. Yeah, we sort of we got a kind of a summer's day today. So sunny, nice. warm, quite nice. hot. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. so wild. So it's it's noon right now for you, or like midday? Um, it's eleven thirty. We're on this weird half hour time zone which i think is unique yeah, yeah. That, that's interesting um, it's something because south australia is so vast it's like sort of eight times the size of texas so from one side to the other you know the farmers complain about the time they have to get up and milk their cows in the west if it's on eastern time and blah 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 yeah so they just settle on okay half an hour, half an hour. <laughs> oh my gosh that's nice to split the difference yeah so it's, uh, uh, it's so we yeah, we're the Losers Club. We're a Stephen King podcast, and we've been doing coverage on the Hearts in Atlantis book. We did a whole episode on Low Man, and we're going to talk about the movie as well. And uh, yeah, thank yeah. you for chatting with us. We just have some questions to you know about the movie sure. and about your experience. And and uh, yeah, I guess we'll just kick it off. Like, what what was it initially that drew you to Hearts in Atlantis? Like, what did you relate to about it? Well, I, basically, I received the screenplay um, and the name William Goldman and the combination of that with Stephen King was obviously yeah. very alluring. And um, so it was the script that's, that uh, that that uh, Bill Goldman had had sort of adapted um, that was my first contact with it. Um, so when it when it came to reading the novel then of course i got quite a surprise because it was obviously a very different <laughs> very <laughs> yeah, different croissant, as they say um and bill had obviously chosen to take the first story uh, low men in yellow coats uh and bookend it with pieces from uh, i can't remember which other one of the stories that he took uh with the older bobby garfield mm-hmm. yeah um as a sort of you know, writer's decision, really. Um, and that's, you know, that's where it started for me. What did you relate most to uh, when it came to this story? You know, was it the relationship, um, you know, with Ted and Bobby? Was it just the kind of small town charm? What was it that really kind of keyed you in? I think it, it was that it was that relationship. And uh, when I read the novel, I was also struck by... <laughs> How, you know, aside from the, I mean, the, the clear supernatural element and Ted in the, in the novel being, you know, an, an alien or, you know, supernatural being, um, in the story, the story proper, it seemed like a really real um, life situation. And I even wondered, I, I, I never got a chance to check this out, but whether it related to anything in Stephen King's own upbringing and background. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, so, you know, that I just, I found that, and I was really struck by the writing in the novel. I must say up to that point, I hadn't, I don't think I'd even read any Stephen King to my, you know, I mean, to my shame, really. Uh, he's an extraordinary writer, clearly. Uh, doesn't need me to say that. <laughs> um, but do you know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. I, I was really, I was struck very forcefully with, how well he captured that sense of a child moving into adolescence and his relationship with his mother. Yeah. I'm sure that had some resonance for, for Stephen based on what I've read about him. Yeah. Um, 
And maybe there was this person in his past who took him seriously as an individual, you know, and then he yeah. ascribed to him certain other powers, you know, I don't know. Yeah. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. You have to ask Stephen. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Do you get to talk to him at all? Or No, not yet. I mean, we he came to a college once, uh, or my college, like 10 or 15 years ago, and I foolishly, when we were doing si- signatures uh, up there, I was just like, hey, thanks for the nightmares, and I like ran away or whatever, <laughs> like an idiot, um, But uh, which has become this ongoing joke now in the podcast, but... Yeah, I do think it is an autobiographical story. Not an autobiographical, but has a very yeah. personal take for them. Just because, you know, the second story in there, the titular Hearts in Atlantis, and that one really goes into, um, you know, his time at the University of Orono. And I feel like that's right. he's definitely speaking from a point of view there in that yeah. one. Yeah, I'm not yeah, sure. I, sorry. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to yeah. say, he always, I think in a lot of his books, he, there's sort of a yearning for a father figure because his father was absent when he was young. And I think Ted is yes, a great example yes. of, because, you know, books were, one of the things his dad did leave behind was a box of uh, old sci-fi novels in the attic. And that's kind of, you know, what he raised himself on was reading all these books that belonged to his dad. And that sort of, you know, led him to his interest in his career. So I think, uh, you know, characters like yeah, Ted, I think are sort of aspirational and things that he wishes he had. Um, they're like the best version because you know ted just keeps giving him these books that are changing his life and i think he's like that's kind of that would have been the ideal version of the childhood that i had right right okay well that that makes sense that makes sense i mean i I regret i know i didn't ever get to meet stephen he was going to come to the location um we were shooting in in um richmond virginia and stanton in in west of the west of virginia um and uh, but he never showed. I mean, this was, I suppose, really only a few months after that terrible accident. That yeah, that this might was right around that there. time. Yeah. Somebody did turn up in town, I have to say, claiming to be Stephen King. And met <laughs> really? <the mayor. laughs> but in the end, it was a hoax. But, you know, I'm not sure that the mayor ever knew. <laughs> that is oh, my wild. goodness. That is a great story. <laughs> Wait, wait. So they he just came in and was just like, you know, wow. Apparently, just, uh, I never so- met this person, but I heard that, oh, Stephen King's been in town. I said, really? It's <laughs> because I hear he's still at home. <laughs> so oh, anyway. my God. Uh, that's hilarious. So this is, you know, William Goldman's second adaptation. And, you know, it feels like, based on what I've read from his interviews, it feels like that he there, there was a connection to this story as well. From Did he talk to you about why he was so drawn to it? Like, I know when he read it, he was just like, I got to get the rights to this immediately. Um, did he have any insights into why, like, this one called to him specifically? No, not, not, not specifically. And I didn't sort of uh, raise any sort of challenge to his choices. Do you know what I mean? He did. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the decisions he'd made. Um, if, if anything, I, you know, I, I, I took it a, a, a stage further in terms of grounding it in, in, in real, uh, real, you know, everyday life terms mm-hmm. um, by, how can I put this? Well, when we had the previews to, to, the, to the cut of the movie, um, there was, there was a lot of, that people felt a lack of clarity about who the low men were and what it was and so on. So that additional scene that is in the movie where they're sort of explained ultimately oh, as yeah. FBI, you know, looking for psychics or whatever, which was a true story. Totally. Yeah. Um, that was a that was a, an additional scene shot to try to allay those concerns about clarity that the audience had, you know. Um, gotcha. 
but, uh, but, but, but Bill had made those choices and I found him wonderful to work with. He was sort of, I did, I was very, very um, scrupulous in those days. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I came up with like 30 pages of notes that all couched as respectfully as I could in, in honor of his, his standing, you know. Yeah. Um, and he looked at this wad of paper and he said, oh my God, you always work this hard. <laughs> I'm like, <sighs> anyway, he had no problem with anything as long as it didn't touch what he called the spine of the story. Directorial flourishes, he could give a damn, you know, whatever, yeah. whatever I wanted to do to express my views in the, you know, because a lot of the themes in the story to me were about memory and, yep. uh, you know, for, for Bobby, the older Bobby and, you know, thrown back into this incredible sort of relationship and that tight, those tight friendships of his last summer as a child, you know. Yeah. Um, I you don't think I answered your question at all, but it, anyway. No, no, that's great. No, that's fine. <laughs> well, when you mentioned directorial flourishes, like things that you had spoken to him about wanting to add, do you remember any of the specific things that you were speaking of? Um, it was, no, they were more, they were more about execution really you know I had a lot of I mean my own conceits if you like about about uh, um, the, the use of, of of mirrors reflections yep. um, the sense even at the beginning when um, um, the older Bobby Garfield is at the funeral of Sully mm -hmm. and he hears a sound from his past and he looks over his shoulder and you, we cut to the kids running through a tunnel. Yeah. And so the past is sort of always present in a way. I like that. And yeah. that, that you can you can slip into it kind of accidentally and you don't know where it's going to take you. And to me, that was that was sort of the the, the journey that I was yeah. following with with Bobby. And um, and Bill, yeah, Bill was all up for that. Um, he was great fun to work with. Oh my God. Oh. I tell you a story. The first, well, yeah. I made it. Oh, please I made it. do. Yeah. This was what was amazing was I got this script on. Uh, it would have been a Thursday here in Adelaide. It was Wednesday in LA. Um, I and really enjoyed it. I called Castle Rock. I spoke to it. Um, well, they, you know, it all got set up for me to talk to them. Um, uh, they said, "Come, come and talk about it." By Sunday, I'm sitting poolside somewhere in, you know, Beverly Hills with William Goldman and the, the head honcho from Castle Rock. And um, they'd asked me, they said, well, who do you see playing the lead? I said, oh, I, I've always wanted to work with Tony Hopkins. Yeah. You know? Great, we'll offer it to him. So they'd offered it to him while I was in the air. Oh my God. <laughs> Anyhow, an assistant comes out and this is the last gasp of terrestrial phones, you know, <laughs> no cell phones poolside. Assistant comes out with a telephone, you know, on a, for, for Martin Schaefer, who's the head of Castle Rock saying, it's Anthony Hopkins' agent on the phone, you know. And um, off goes Martin to talk to the agent. Bill Goldman says to me, it's got to be good news. I said, <laughs> oh, really? How does that work? He said, you don't ring with bad news on a Sunday afternoon. You leave that till, you leave that till Tuesday morning. <laughs> okay, so then out comes Martin and he says, good news. Um, Tony's read half the script and loves it. And Bill says, what about the other half? Yeah. <laughs> You know, and anyway, so he said he's so eager. He doesn't want to miss out. So he's telling us he loves it. And, yeah. You know, yeah. And it turned out, sorry, this is a massive rave. Yeah. It turned out that Tony Hopkins was in somewhere in Europe and he was working on Hannibal. Yeah. And he was reading, he was, he was looking at um, 
some something to do with was it misery i think was the first adaptation mm-hmm. that King's Goldman did, yeah yeah and and he'd done a goldman script himself hopkins um and he said he he was thinking about wow wouldn't it be good to do a stephen king story you know with goldman <laughs> it's so strange. his agent flies out to see him and at the they meet up at the hotel and the guy says i've got a script for you to read i said oh yeah what, what's it what is it? he said well, it's a stephen king novel adapted by william, william goldman and Hopkins said, I'll do it. He didn't even know what it was. That's hilarious. And his agent said, well, I think you better read it first. You know? And he said, yeah, but you know, he wow. wanted to do it. He said it was, it, it was, he was, it was telling him. It was telling him he had to do it. You know? Yeah. I mean, so, very serendipitous. I mean, you. Very. I mean, it, yeah, it was incredible. That's um, wild that you had said his name and then he had already been on the pulse of, or something for <laughs> King. Yeah. It's kind of, I mean, things like that. Uh, very, you know, I, I, I get that there's another energy that you can't quite pin down. Well, King calls it Ka, <laughs> which is a big <laughs> okay. part of it. Yeah, he says Ka's a wheel when it, when, in, in situations like that. It's a, you know, a Dark Tower thing for sure. Um, yeah. But speaking of the Dark Tower, actually, um, that seemed to be a, a you know, nice easy seg there um beautiful i'm very very impressed with this yeah yeah so you know there were so many dark tower connections in the source material you know what were some discussions about well this isn't going to make sense when you put this on screen so did you have those with uh with you know goldman or no i you know i i feel very disappointing in that sense i i was really and i have to be honest to say i was sort of oblivious to sure the the complexity of this and the history and maybe willfully so in order to just focus on the story that we had yeah. um, but the the thing was and and you know as i say i had not read uh, anything i think of of steven of steven's work but the first thing i the first thing i did read was this oh yeah oh yeah that's our next we're about to we're and, yeah we're about to talk about that book that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. It's just fantastic. And, you know, it, it part, part sort of memoir, but, but a memoir about writing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and incredible. He uses terms in that I still use to this day about how you accumulate a toolbox of, with layers to it, of vocabulary, of grammar, of so on. It's so beautifully expressed. And I feel like that with my directing, which is you never know when something like at university i used to learn all sorts of stuff that didn't make any sense to me at all you know about (laughs) movement and drama and stuff but when i came to talk to actors as a director i suddenly found i had these things in my toolbox you know and i had words that i could use to to connect with actors that i'd never imagined when i was you know just enjoying learning about drama and filmmaking yeah yeah have you read any other but, Stephen King since then? I've I've not I'm not a great sort of fan of the supernatural. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. And 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 much is stuff look but the thing was I I realized that the phenomenal directors that had had had, had approached his work you you know from from you know from Rob Reiner to Stanley Kubrick yeah. the god you know um that I thought, well, it wouldn't be bad to have that in your CV, another one by Stephen King. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and his work encompasses so so much too. I mean, you know, you can go from, you know, the deep 
you know, the shining, then you can go to, uh, you know, the green mile or something like that. Like his, his work is yeah, like, and, or yeah. obviously hearts in Atlantis. And I mean, and I think that's really the most important thing about, uh, low men in yellow coats is it's such like an integral dark tower text that it's funny. Right. I feel like to you, you said you were willfully sort of ignoring it. I think you had to, because if you didn't, you'd be sort of opening up this like Pandora's was, box of, yeah. of so, so much box, lore. Yeah. And so, uh, but yeah, but I think that is what you, what you focused on and you captured is that relationship at the center, which is one of, I think the key things that and sort of, you know, that loss of innocence of the end of adolescence, which is also very present in the film. Well, the beginning, yeah, yeah the beginning of adolescence. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that um, Anton, I mean, Anton Yelchin was just a, such a phenomenon um, yeah. such a prodigy you know yeah. um and the uh, can i t- t- tell you a little bit about the casting yeah I'd oh love to totally hear about how, I mean, like, yeah well the, you know it's the usual thing but hundreds of kids hundreds of tapes blah blah blah, blah. i meet with maybe a dozen read with them etc you know and eventually winnows down to the and when i saw this tape of Anton I just went oh my god that's it you know we're done yeah. we're done but then I had to figure out how to broach this with with Hopkins you know because I didn't want to confront him with a choice that he could, I didn't wanted to see how it would connect so I took the three best contenders Anton was my prime one and two other really talented kids and we went to um uh Charleston North Carolina in fact, there was a docket in this damn book when I pulled it out. <laughs> Keswick Hall at Monticello, which was where we were staying when oh, okay. Tony, okay. Tony was staying there shooting the next bit of Hannibal. And um, so I went, took the kids yeah. down there, and we did a reading with, with Tony. Uh, and it was all good. I put the two kids that were my second and third choice there, and then left Anton till last and then Anton appeared in the doorway and Tony looked at him and just said wow you're good I mean just you could see and and Anton was this most amazing child I mean he was so uh grown up in his manner and his attitude and his outlook and he he could only call him Sir Anthony I mean Tony kept saying call me Tony he never could never get to that and he but when Tony praised him he fell apart and I thought oh gee that's wow because he was so overcome. Um, anyhow, I sit them down at this table and uh, Tony's got his script there. Anton's off the page because he's learned the part, obviously, and, and in anticipation. Um, and they start to, 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 to play the scene across the table. And it's going and we're about six lines in and Tony stops and says, you're really good. <laughs> <laughs> And again, Anton crumbled. And I thought, oh, oh I God, bet. stop telling him he's good. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so he, fell, he fell apart, but I just sort of said, okay, come on, pull yourself together. He had action. And he went, woof, and he sort of, he just challenged Tony over the table and kind of pushed him back, you know, mentally with his read. It was fantastic. And I thought, wow, okay, we're done. This is it. Yeah. And Tony was totally on the same page. So anyway, that was the Anton story. Which is in- such a delight. And that's so spectacular too, because I mean, it's his debut. You know, it was like his feature debut, and it's like that to have that sort of agency already is astounding. He was, he was fully, and then the, the amazing thing, of course, was with all three the three kids who are leads in the in the in the piece, Mika Boring and the other boy. Um, uh, we the all America wide search in the case of 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 Bobby, it was worldwide search. Yeah. 
they were all living within a mile of Studio City. That's so wild. <laughs> well, that pans out. Yeah. They were already there. They That's were ready. Funny. They'd done their work. They'd done their homework. They were just poised. You know, yeah. I was stunned. It was like a, amazing. And yeah. I just thought, pictured the 30,000 other kids who were living within a mile of Studio City waiting the TMZ was it, is what or, I was called. Or pumping gas as Demon <laughs> Yeah, that's true. <laughs> was it just as natural when you got on set with the two of them? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and um, Anton never never ceased to to amaze me. Um, uh, Tony was quite remarkable too, quite quixotic yeah. sort of in his choices. Um, and, you know, he was changeable, quite very moody, very moody. But, oh, my. God, could he yeah. deliver? <laughs> you know, it would just roll out from him in a fabulous way. And then, and the, the two together were just yeah. brilliant. Had any of the cast read the book? Were they um, bringing anything from the text into the script? Or was it, again, kind of a willful I th- ignoring? I think I think David Morse had, mm-hmm. um, yeah, because he'd done The Green Mile. Yeah. And um, so it was an interesting thing for him. He, he's, a again, a delightful actor and just... You know, it was a beautiful sort of opportunity. Um, I can't think of any of the others did. I'm sure Anton probably read it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it sounds like he was uh, gung ho on it. <laughs> well, you'd start between takes, you know, I'd be talking to the, to the cameraman or something, and, and uh, I could hear a conversation between Tony and Anton, and they'd be talking about F. Scott Fitzgerald. <laughs> oh, my Shakespeare God. Or, oh, it was. Uh, it was something else god what else but it's just so interesting oh absolutely i mean that was god it's it's still such an uh i remember when it happened and it was just like how did that it's just an awful it's just awful it's just awful um with with anthony hopkins though i mean you'd mentioned hannibal multiple times that was a big stretch for him in that role too because you know not only does he come back for hannibal but he's back for red dragon a year later was there any like reluctance or concern in bringing him on to this paternalistic role? Did Anton even get kind of creeped out by him? I mean, because I mean, imagine as a kid, Hannibal's so iconic. So to see him on set, I was. Was there any sort of holy shit? There's Hannibal Lecter. There right was. There. <laughs> I don't. Nothing that I. Nothing that I noticed. And in an odd way, um, I mean, Tony is such a, a chameleon, and in the sense that you know he is a, almost like a. Sh- shifter of you know which explains why he could he can play someone like Nixon or whatever that he looks nothing like mm-hmm. you know and yet he is the greatest mimic of voices that I've ever ever heard and um, and it, something happens with his face when he when he mimics someone the geometry of his face changes and he's sort of consciously or unconsciously taking on the mannerisms of that person which affects the way they speak and I mean, there was a great illustration of this when apparently when they found um, they found uh, rolls of Spartacus that had not been used, and they wanted to do a, a, a recut. And so I presume this was with Kubrick. I don't mm-hmm. I don't know that much, but um, but there were some reels where the sound was missing, and they went to Joan Plowright because um, Olivier was had passed away. Yeah. And they said, well, who could possibly, is there anybody who could, and she said, there's only one person who could copy Larry's voice is Tony Hopkins. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. So he revoiced, 
the part, the scenes that they used. And if you watch, listen carefully, you just get it. But he was, he was, he was that level of mimic where he's, he becomes that character. Yeah. Um, and funny enough, and again, sorry, you can cut any of this out. Oh, now, no, but no, we the, love the, it. The, Tony told me about when he auditioned for the National Theatre, which was then run by Lord Olivier. Um, he auditioned for Olivier as a young, lusty young actor. And Olivier was playing, believe it or not, in this woke age, he was playing Othello oh sure, my gosh. <laughs> on, on the West End. Can you imagine now? Um, and um, so Tony chose as his audition monologue, Othello's key <laughs> <laughs> soliloquy and delivered move. it to the man himself who was at six o'clock that evening would be going on stage, you know, <laughs> or blacking up probably. And, um, and, uh, Olivier listened to him and Tony told me, he said, listen to him and said, you're a very cheeky boy. I want you. I want you. And he took him in. And, and within a year, Tony was his understudy at the National Theatre. But that was, you know, the level of his, his level of cheek. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is so funny because nowadays everyone's doing impersonations of Anthony Hopkins. Like, <laughs> you know, like the, like the trip movies. Which they, one? Yeah. The, the, like, oh, the, the, the bounty is a big one. You know, it's uh, oh, not yeah, sir, yeah. not captain. Uh, like that's a <laughs> you know, big one they do. in I think every trip movie, they do some sort of quote from the bounty. So it's interesting how... It's all become cyclical it goes around. at this point. Yeah, there were yeah. some. There were a number. A number of people on the crew. The production manager, in particular, I remember she was the first um, who asked Tony to put their voice message on on their answering machine. Uh, <laughs> in those days, you know, it was still sure. answering machines. Yeah, and um, and he so he put it on in the in the guise of Hannibal. He would say, oh, God. you know, the, the, the thing would, would the phone would ring and then he would answer. He would say um, in his Hannibal voice, he would say. Donna's not here. <laughs> In fact, we haven't seen her for quite some time. <laughs> and then he would do his. <laughs> oh, oh man, oh, uh, that's great. Have you Fantastic. seen Have you seen any of his like TikTok videos where he plays piano with his cat? Or uh, no, oh they're no, great. Must, oh my, he God, has a lot of right. videos that have gone viral of just right. him playing piano with his cat or doing. He did this one video where he did an impression of like Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, and Sylvester Stallone, like while oh. he's like doing a dance. He's very, it's very <laughs> playful and very funny. It's like not what you would expect, but a great delight. Fantastic! I must, I will check it out. Yeah, if you Google it, you'll find it. Um, he did, he did, he did things. You know, on the set too, we were, we were, we were ready to shoot this particular scene and. Uh, it's a night scene and blah blah blah, and he's sitting in his chair on the on the on the kind of porch of the house uh, with Anton there, and we're ready to roll. And suddenly, there's a yapping of a dog in the studio, and my wife Kerry, who's the producer, is going mad. She's saying, "What? Where's that? Who's brought that dog in the studio?" Everybody's <laughs> running around looking for this dog, you know. And then eventually, Anton says, "It's Sir Anthony," <laughs> <laughs> and Tony was ventriloquizing. Oh a buck, God. and he sat there with his mouth completely, and and, and he was doing this perfect little Jack Russell yapping. Oh my oh God, God. <laughs> so, a troublemaker! Just a little, I love it. Could have been worse. Could have been yeah. worse. It's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'd also love to talk about Hope Davis a little bit because she's incredible. Sure. And in the, in I find it interesting in the story, Liz is is an in, incredibly sort of um, uh, purposely complex, but also. Uh, 
almost punishingly repellent character, which is very intentional uh, because it's a lot about the ways that Bobby goes from seeing her as sort of a nagging mother as a child to a fully fleshed out human being who he both resents, but also loves, you know? And I, I, I find it interesting. Like, uh, I feel like, like Hope Davis, uh, the way she plays the role is more sort of pragmatic than vitriolic. Was there any discussion about that, uh, choice specifically, uh, and how she approached that character? I think the key, the thing to me was that, that, um, it was, you know, in some ways in 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 i think in 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 literature you can you can take a character over the edge yeah. and 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 redeem them and bring them back right it's 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 a it's a harder trick to pull off on screen you know because somebody's behavior i mean especially towards a child yeah if they cross a line it's very hard to sort of retain empathy for them or to bring it back and mm-hmm. i'm always a, a believer that there aren't really, I mean, you're sure there are villains. I mean, Hannibal Lecter, <laughs> but you know, let's, let's face it, um, talk about it, irredeemable, but, um, you know, there are mostly people are human beings mm-hmm. and even at their most villainous, there's always a, 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 a slice of humanity that you, you want to tap into. So th- it was a bit of a balancing act there and mm-hmm. trying to, I mean, hope was good, was up for whatever, She's such a fine actress. I mean, yeah. really, so that fantastic sort of brittle <laughs> edge, you know, this with this this gorgeous child who just wants more attention from her, right. you know. Um, and uh, I, so I thought she 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 managed that balance extremely well because when when the tide turns for against her, yeah, I think there's enough residual empathy to to bring the audience back to her even though they still are combative yeah towards the end and then finally it's you know sort of yeah i mean honestly yeah she might be that character might be i think the hardest like in that book and the hardest one sort of to capture on screen i think she does a lovely job and it's it's very well done but it's like that is such a complex character in ways that like everyone is but i think that's that character who sort of exists at that um, place in life where the resentments and resentment and the bitterness is is so close to overwhelming the love and that's yes, such like yes. a, a a hard balance to to nail and i yeah so i just think it's it's admirable the way that uh that character was able to manifest on screen because it could have so she, easily yeah. just been sort of a a shrill and um, exactly yeah 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 I, t- I think you're totally right. I mean, she she really pulled that off, and she there was something about. I mean, although she's a character caught up in this kind of bliss, well, not quite blissful, but certainly total self-absorption. Um, yeah. There's a there's a there's a scene that I really really enjoyed, and which she really enjoyed when she's trying on different yeah you know yeah. gowns of frocks and stuff for her big time you know seminar that she's going to, um, and and she there's such fun going on in there and then bobby peers around the door and she shrinks yeah (laughs) yeah and that but he pulls off this beautiful moment there where she goes you know uh, what do you think and it says i can't remember what he said but she says no the frock the frock bobby (laughs) and then and anton just goes does this beautiful wow yeah (laughs) and and you feel that you feel there's still 
a connection yep. there even even though things are not good between them there's still right. something yeah you know? the storm clouds yeah. lift for a moment yeah 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 exactly there's a lot exactly. of nuance and i and i feel like you know when it comes to translating from page to screen like bringing those nuances is really hard and i feel like you know obviously you nail it here you were coming off of snow falling on cedars which is another complex you know narrative from page to screen would you say that that production aided you in being able to kind of gel that that translation on screen from page to screen? It's, I don't know. I think the, you, you know, it's always um, any adaptation, I think, um, has obviously uh, some, there's a there's sort of a price to pay mm-hmm. for it. Um, you know, the fact is you're faced with, with hundreds of pages of a novel uh, and, a, and a very elaborate sort of uh, unwinding of a story. Um, and that these these sometimes severe choices have to be made. Um, in Snow Falling, I think um, I, I felt like I sort of managed to grasp the three or four strands of that 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 story sufficiently not to truncate the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, Hearts and Atlantis was a different was a very clinical choice initially, in a sense, by Goldman to focus as we've talked about. On, on, on the low men in yellow coats. Um, and, and then <laughs> it's through a convolution that you get the title, Hearts and Atlantis. And <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a little bit, little bit painful if you really know what it is. Yeah. But, we debated but, about yeah, the book collection okay. too, though. That's to be fair. Like we were wondering if yeah. it even makes sense for the book. So it's fair. <laughs> yeah, right. That's true. That's true. <laughs> like, wait, that's true. what? Like, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's a great title. That's it is a it great is. title, but it's all, I, I, the, I mean, Randall, you're on the episode. All of you are all like, does this work as a title for the book? I don't, I don't know. I guess it does. I mean, there yeah, are, right. they play the game yeah. hearts, but. It's something we debate, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm curious about, this is a question that I think is is something I, I like to ask a lot of the filmmakers or actors that we talk to, which is essentially when you were making this movie, what was the Stephen King brand like in terms of how it was marketed? Because sometimes King projects are marketed as like from the master of horror. But then also mm-hmm. you have these times yeah, when he's yeah. making dramas and it's like the writer of Stand By Me and uh, The Green Mile, you know? So, and I think his, his evolution as a writer has evolved so much over time in the ways that people view him. Like some people think he's one of the best writers of, of uh, children, like in, in a lot of popular yeah. literature. So sometimes they'll focus on that aspect, like with the It movies. So I'm curious sort of was when the marketing for Hearts in Atlantis was out or, or discussions were happening back uh, behind the scenes, was King's name, the brand of King, like a big part of all of that? Or did this story sort of perhaps exist independent of that? Oh, no, I think it was, it was an important element of it. Um, yeah. And given, I mean, the DNA of the company really with Castle Rock having been the makers of, of Stand By Me, yeah, there was there was something you know clearly in that that they could they could refer to and reflect on, yeah, um, and you know and then there's the Green Mile as well as you mentioned. Um, so, but but you no, know, King was certainly a very very important element and really why the film had to be called Hearts in Atlantis because right. the book was called Hearts in Atlantis and that was you know that was the fact of the matter. Um, yeah. And it was interesting that King, I never, as I say, I was unfortunately never met Stephen, but he and Bill Goldman, Bill, Bill told me this, were at a screening at some university in New York uh, of a film with a Q&A afterwards. And um, somebody asked uh, specifically of Stephen, um, 
you know, what did he, what, what was his favorite adaptation um, of, of, a, of, of one of his books to screen? And his, you know, look, I just take this up face value, <laughs> but he just said, well, I reckon this one rates pretty high, oh. which is what they, they just watched Hearts yeah. and Atlantis. Yeah. I think it was very politic and a very, you know, it was all in line <laughs> with the marketing of the film. But um, I, I like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I would no, definitely. I, like I was just going to say, he tweet, he tweeted about our podcast and we like to think that, uh, you know, that, yeah. that he'll, he'll, he still believes the same way he did uh, when he first yeah. tweeted it as he does now. So. Yeah. yeah, the top quality, basically. No, um, <laughs> um, you know, uh, how involved, though, was Castle Rock? Because I, I'm, I'm also really invested in that. I'm not, I'm not, not literally invested in that company because I don't have the money to do that. But I emotionally, I just I, I'm a big fan of everything they've done, you know, from Seinfeld to all the, you know, the King annotations, but also to their dramas and just how they create a certain type of movie that I, I really feel just doesn't exist anymore today in this current era. And, yeah, that's you know, true. and I'm wondering true. how involved were they and what was the process like working with that production company? Because I imagine it's, it's gotta be like creative, liber- creatively liberating. Right. Right. It was, it was, it was terrific. They're a very, a very good, um, group of people, obviously highly intelligent, you know, very, you know, very communicative, um, very much involved um, in each, in any the process of development of the, of the screenplay. Um, and, you know, the, whatever the ideas and things that I was pitching at them about the production values and what, how we, where we should shoot and how, because it was quite com- complicated, oddly complicated for what looks fairly simple on the screen. Um, and so that I really enjoyed, you know, from Martin Schaefer and Liz Glotzer and the others, you know, were just a fantastic, <laughs> I had, <laughs> oh God, we'd, we'd sit down sometimes and they just all talk at once, which is <laughs> kind of fantastic, but I found it really hard to sort out. I'm going, like, listen, can we just sit one of you? And they're going, shut up, we're Jewish. This is what we do. <laughs> Okay, okay, right. It's true, it's very true. You know, I, I loved it, loved it. But they were all so enthusiastic and I was like, and here's the thing, when, I came to, when it came to making the movie, they just left me alone, you know, which was exactly what you want. And yeah, of course, yeah. they're still watching everything and, talk, and they're available to talk to. And, you know, I, I found that very supportive, you know, and the same also with the Warner Brothers folks as well, you know, um, uh, provided you are communicative, you keep that door open um, and provided they're looking at when they're looking at dailies that they like what they see, um, you're not beset with their their vision for what the film is. And I, I was, and Rob Rob Reiner was was it was was amazing. He he said to me, "You've made the best." <laughs> I said, "Coming from a guy who made Stand by Me, what the hell can you <laughs> talk about?" He said, "I'm just telling you." You know, it was so sweet. Yeah. yeah. Um, and again, incredibly confidence building, you know, and I took it with the, the large grain of salt that you need to take that with. But he was, um, he was, he was fantastic. People, he would come to the previews as well. And, yeah. you know, so it was, it was, it was good to have that collective kind of wisdom. And as you say, making films that are now rarer in the marketplace now. Yeah. Um, they, they had just announced that they're coming back. So I'm hoping that there's something there, but yeah, it really does. Like just watching it now, 
one of the biggest things I, the takeaways I had is just that it does feel like an anomaly nowadays, you know, like where are yeah, the hearts yeah. in Atlantis? Are they just for Netflix? You, is it just for HBO, you know, direct? I, I don't know. I don't, I, it just, it's very strange. And it's, it's that, it's that sort of, you know, what, what was, you know, the budget was in that kind of, um, the range that's no longer there, which yeah. is in the sort of 20, 20 to 30 million. Right. You, you know, nobody's interested in that. And you want to make a film for 5 million or 500 million. <laughs> Fine. But, in between it's a it's, it's in between yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um so I, I know this is probably a, a sensitive topic but we we know the cinematographer passed away a few months before the release how did this affect the production for you what was that like on set oh, it was well this was um we had finished the main unit shooting um and it was very shortly after that and it was shattering yeah. you know shattering thing How, just almost impossible to believe he was very young he was 43 he was oh, wow. you know he seemed robust he was a very spirited manner we we had a terrific collaboration you know not without its struggles but that's what collaboration is you know yeah. and um and the shock of it was just colossal because i felt like you know and when we we we, we did the previews um and then had to do these additional reshoots or additional scenes and of course Piotr had gone um, but very kindly Alan Davio stepped in and lit this, the additional scenes in Piotr's style and Chivo Lebeski stepped up and did the timing of the final negative which was a fantastic gesture in honor of Piotr really mm-hmm. um, who yeah I think was a great a really great spirit um and uh um complicated and dark and very polish (laughs) yeah um and with a beautiful family who his son piotr is an outstanding cinematographer oh that's wonderful he's awesome yes the um god what is that film called it's um, the name of christ or the can you take a look and look at piotr sobaczynski jr because the, his work in this movie, it's Polish Polish film, is just unbelievable, and it's a dynastic thing. Because Piotr's father worked with Polanski as cinematographer, yeah, so and now been... his son is winning awards and attention as an outstanding cinematographer. Was it? Um, uh, and his, was, was it Corpus Christi or Corpus um... Christi? I yeah, Christ sent it to it somewhere. <laughs> Corpus Corpus Christi, yeah. It's brilliant. It's 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 just a, an incredibly uh, incredibly shot film, not in any showy way at all, but in the way it enhances and reflects the key performances of the film. It's extremely sensitively lit, nice. and I think he's a brilliant, brilliant young man. You know, he's with a huge future, and even his younger brother Michael is also a cinematographer, I believe. Just um, photos so anyway. galore, I imagine, in that family. Just nonstop. Oh, yeah. Everyone taking yeah. photos all the time. <laughs> you know, just like, put your cameras down. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, looking back, do you have any other fond memories or anecdotes about the shoot overall? I mean, it. one of the things that I think is so interesting is that, you know, I have I have a lot of family that uh, lives in Fredericksburg, Virginia, and I, I haven't been there in years but I think about it all the time. I think about the way the sun looks there and uh, sorry, sorry if I get a little poetic here, but like <laughs> I, I, I think about a lot of the colors 
of that area and just how it really does look different. There's something, you know, there's cologne, it's very colonial and not just for the history there, but just the look of it. Is it something, you know, does your mind often wander back there? You know, are there particular images or memories that you might think about still even 20 years later? Oh yeah. I mean, it was, it was a, you know, we, I mean, we, the, the, the main location in being in Virginia, we, we, we had to get as far south as we could to catch the fall, mm-hmm. you know, because in the north already the trees were sort of losing their leaves. And, you know, we had scenes to do in high summer as well as the fall oh, and gosh, the yeah. winter, as it turns out. So it was like a, a bit of a gamble, but that took us to, to that part of the world. And um, it was just extraordinarily beautiful and the light was 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 fantastic. So that that was, you know, a very, very key element. Um, but much of, I mean, much of my memories of the film revolve around, you know, working with the cast in particular, and and that incredible sort of balance you have to find when you have a, you know, six hundred pound gorilla like Tony, uh, <laughs> and you've got this this kid, you know, this ingenue, and how do you how do you how do you balance them? How do you? And Tony was extremely sensitive to that. I have to say, you know, he would say, "This is about the boy. It's about the boy." Just, you know, and so it wasn't sort of one of those you know hog the screen guys at mm-hmm. all um but a very complex individual to work with at the same time i mean yeah. we struck up a great rapport um thanks to my wife actually she said on the first day i'm working with the kids setting up a big crane and and we're having a whale of a time we've been shooting for two weeks before tony arrives tony arrives he's sitting in his trailer kerry comes to me and says go talk to tony and I said, well, i'm busy i'm busy look i've got these kids i've got this crane i've got this she said you need to go talk to him. <laughs> so I went, I, so I talked to him, but we set up this little routine of every morning I would just knock on his trailer door and go in and we talk. We never talked about the film, actually. Yeah. We just talked about things, life and whatever. And he told me stories from his childhood and until they come on and say, oh, time to get on set and I'd go. So we had a, we built this rapport which became incredibly useful when we did have a bit of a blow up, uh, which, which sort of happened one day, which, was terrifying <laughs> when I say we I mean it was it was you know he sort of exploded <laughs> yeah um over some trifling thing and I couldn't work out what the hell was going on and so I called a break you know I said Let, okay let's stop and he said no you got to carry on now you've already <laughs> the scene you know, this is a great be, impersonation like, by the way <laughs> yeah <Hang on. laughs> anyway so I said no we'll have a break you know and so we had a we, we had a break and I thought this the end of my career I better see if I can get a seat on the plane back to Australia tonight <laughs> and um, then I thought why was he behaving like that he was normally so calm you know like what was so the whole set is empty and and I everybody's disappeared um, and and I went and sat where he'd been sitting um, and I realized that everything the whole set had been torn away for the in favor of the lighting, the stands and the cutters and the lights and thing. And there was nothing of the set, even the table he was supposed to be doing something on was just a plank on an apple box. And and I thought, okay, maybe, I don't know, maybe. The, so I said, get rebuild this set now, give me uh-huh. back the set. I want to take all these cutters. And Piotr went, proper, just said, oh, my shadows, you can't do it. I said, listen, 
listen, Piotr, nobody's looking at your shadows right now. <laughs> we don't even have an actor. And anyway, in the end, they're going to be looking at Hopkins. I just, just throw, give me some shadows, but give me the walls back. So anyway, we rebuilt the whole set, put it all, gave him his chair, gave him his seat. And then I had to figure out, well, how do I get him back on the set? Yeah. You know, it's easy to dismiss everybody. How do you get him out? So I went to his trailer, knocked on the door, and we had that routine. Yeah. He opens the door, like, looking out. And he said, what is it? I said, can I come in for a minute? <laughs> and in I go. And he's, he's a tough man, you know, he's yeah. there, um, ready for a ready for a full-on fight, I think. And I, so I said, I owe you a huge apology. <laughs> Which completely sort of like ripped the carpet off. He said, What? What are you? I said, I didn't realize what we'd done to you. And we we torn down the set. We had nothing to, you know. So listen, I've, we've rebuilt the set, we've put all the details back in there and given you your nest back, you know, like. So anyway, my apologies and so on. Maybe when you feel like it, come back and join. He said, no, let's go and do it now. <laughs> and he was completely, he just came back in. Um, and it was like charm, absolute yeah. like a charm. I don't know. I, I still don't know whether it actually was that that was the problem, but it was a solution. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It was like fine, uh, trying to find what could have been bothering him. Yeah. Um, and, and sorry to be the only, only anecdote about Tony because he was an absolute child. In fact, he then sent me two books. I love it. The next day, he gave me these two first editions of, um, of Robert Louis Stevenson books, novels. Oh, my goodness. Which was the sweetest thing. And he just said, you know, dear, this is his, dear, dear Scott, thank oh, you. How cool. Oh, my gosh. Wow, he really got into the... Handing he out books be, just like this character. <laughs> like, yes, yes, yes. He really became Ted. Totally. <laughs> he said, The thing when you're playing these characters, sometimes he said, I go into a very dark place and then it comes out in a way that I don't necessarily expect or mean to happen. He wrote a beautiful note to me and just saying, You know, I'm sorry for yesterday or whatever it was. And it was just an absolute charm, you know, but we, there was such a foundation to the relationship that we'd built that I felt it survived that. And yeah. we had on the best of terms, you know. So um, he's a remarkable, remarkable man. It doesn't, again, need me to say that, but he is. Um, as we wrap up here, there's just one other scene I wanted to ask you about because it's probably my favorite in the movie and one of my favorites in the story, which is the, um, like the three card Monty scene with Alan Tudyk. <laughs> Alan uh, Tudyk. Yeah. yeah. Like that's, that was, I think the first thing I'd ever seen him in when I was younger and I, he made I think it was back. the first, yeah, yeah, sort of featured role in that sense. Yeah. 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 Like, so what do you remember about that shoot or preparing for that shoot or even the casting of Alan, like things of that nature? Because I think that scene is extremely successful in capturing what was happening in the book, but also capturing sort of the magic that kind of exists beneath the surface of, of Bobby. Uh, when we actually spoke to David Morse recently and the scene that he brought up was that moment and Anton, right. the way right. Anton watches him during the I game. Guess- yeah. mesmerizing isn't he yeah. isn't he it's really sort of you know you feel him reading his mind you know yeah and uh alan was well this is i've got to give huge credit to ronna cress who who was the, the casting agent that was working with me and she she finds these people like alan at that stage who are just on the cusp of emergence right uh, clearly equipped you know, robustly equipped with everything they need. It's just they need a break <laughs> is what it is. Yeah. And so for me, it was just like a gift 
you know, meeting him, seeing what he could do, that energy, that incredible energy and focus. Um, and then an actor like, like that, and many, you know, many of the actors that I work with, they bring to the scene. It's not me going, now, this is what I, this is what I want you to do. And I want you to blah, 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 blah. They, 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 they bring their energy, they bring their preparation, and they show you their goods, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And, and then, you know, you can adjust that and you can, you can nudge it in this direction or that direction, but uh, you're not digging, you're not just digging for it. Right. And Alan is very much in that, that, that vein of an actor who comes beautifully prepared and well he's rehearsed in his own mind and and you know everything is a gift to the to the director i, I love working actors like that i mean you know you you will sometimes get the opposite and you have to for <laughs> it but but i much rather and then it's it's in the casting choices you know casting is 50 of the job as mm -hmm. john I mean, John ford used to say you know yeah if you get it right you're halfway there yeah. <laughs> And, and the reverse applies. <laughs> of it's true. Uh, well, thank you so much for talking to us. I mean, this has been a joy talking to you this well, hour. Well, look, I'm delighted, you know, and, and that anyone should remember the film 20 years on, I'm thrilled <laughs> about. Um, and uh, uh, hats off to Stephen for the, for the, um, the branding. Um, <laughs> That's <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, hats off to you, Scott. This was a lovely chat. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Seriously. I really enjoyed it. And you guys are, are great. It's very, very fresh. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Scott. have Bye. a great one. Happy holidays. This is the end of our show, for now. Tune in next week. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more. <laughs>